Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator at the FISA blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and other works at the farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. All right, guys, both gifts today are repeaters. As for the first one, it has been far too long since he has dropped by. Folks, I give you guys the great Mark of Housatonic Live. Mark, thank you so much for joining us tonight, sir. Oh, it is awesome to be here. Thank you for having me on your show, trusting me on your program, and uh, introducing me to your audience again. It's going to be a great night. We have a lot of great content here, but we're going to boil it down, and people are going to get a lot of value out of this show, I believe. Thank you. Yes, it is going to be a very informative one. I'm uh, I'm very excited. All right. So also joining us tonight is the reoccurring figure of John Brisson of We've Read the Documents. John, thank you so much for dropping by again tonight, sir. As always, I am glad to be here with two of the best, and I mean best, parapolitical researchers out there, Mark from Musatonic Live and uh, the infamous recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder of The Farm and uh Glad to join you guys in, in tonight's show. It's going to be great. And uh, yeah, so let's get down to it. All right, guys, this is an important and timely installment in the farm. Here we are going to look at the murky history of U.S. Chemical and Biological Warfare Research, or CBW. Nowadays, though, the chemical component is frequently left behind. So it's more bio war or so-called biodefense. The latter is a total fallacy, as we shall soon explore. We are going to take you from the shores of Plum Island to the killing fields of the Southern African Bush Wars and on to the hysterics in post-9-11 America and ending up somewhere among the substandard bio-defense facilities of Wuhan and Ukraine. It is going to be quite a journey, guys, so let us get going here. Okay, so let's start off with the significance of chemical and biological warfare research. Further, Mark, can you guys, or can one of you guys get uh, guys get into the absurd distinction between offensive and defensive CBW programs? It's all due purpose, after all. So, Mark, why don't you start us off? Well, I'll kick it off uh, reviewing uh, some research that I was doing about uh, World War. Two, And my initial surprise when I saw many of the uh, documents out of the United States military uh, titled the Department of War instead of the Department of Defense. And my initial reaction was, I wonder why they renamed it to the Department of War during World War II. Ultimately, I came to realize that 
that rebranding uh, happened sometime, I guess, right afterwards uh, of Department of War and military to the Department of Defense. It's just a kinder, gentler way of uh, of marketing uh, these operations uh, and of that uh, that department as a whole. And that applies. You can see that rebranding applying to other departments as well. What used to be known as chemical and biological warfare ultimately became biological defense. There is no bio offense anymore. There is no offensive military anymore. Yet, I would I believe most people see offensive-ish operations coming out of the United States uh, going into other countries, usually in the name of uh, advancing uh, democracy or spreading democracy and uh, defending freedoms, uh, etc. The uh, so a lot of it is a rebranding thing, a marketing thing. But the why it is it has been stated that as because there are uh, uh, international conventions uh, which prohibit the development of and the manufacture of offensive biological weapons. In order to be able to, for a nation to protect itself against a biological weapon or a biological uh, offensive technology, it would need to be able to understand how one would have been manifested and created. Thus, there's always this little wiggle room of you have to develop a weapon or at least know how the weapon is developed in order to provide the protection. But it's a little bit like saying, well, we don't want countries making uh, atomic weapons. Nonetheless, we need to design and build atomic weapons so we can make sure that the goggles uh, will work effectively should one accidentally go off or be uh, you know, tossed into our territory. Uh, so that's a, a good kickoff uh, for the uh, uh, offensive versus defensive there. It's just, it's just marketing. It's just the way it's described. And uh, it's, it's nonsense to suggest that there is no uh, offensive uh, biological uh, warfare uh, program. John? No, I agree with you. I mean, there's enough evidence uh, through various countries in the world uh, through different, you know, uh, time periods uh, to suggest that there are offensive um, biowarfare um research and also exercises and warfare actually being used for war. Uh, I mean, the United States, uh, you know, claims that they have ended their so-called research programs that were labeled, you know, mainly primarily for uh, quote unquote bio defense uh, to kind to, to try to save our food supply and, uh, livestock supply, which was what they claim all the research was going to, and it was extremely benevolent, uh, you know, for 60 plus years. But yet we readily admit, and it's well known that the USSR, uh, before um, it folding and becoming Russia, uh, had a well-known biological uh, research program that is not labeled as a bio defense program, but a bio warfare program. Uh, so, you know, the Soviets were doing it, but, you know, the United States has never, ever, ever, you know, 
done anything malicious, okay? And in doing so, in mentioning that you're a Russian agent, if you believe otherwise, okay? Only when the Democrats are president or in power, though, however, the Republicans are in power or president, then, um, then uh, you're okay. You can say that. Um, but so, but yeah, I mean, if anybody thinks that it's only been just for um, protection, or for us to run exercises to see what quote unquote happens. Um, I'm sorry, you live in a fantasy land. All right. Um, and to not think that the United States hasn't, I mean, everybody loves to talk about Tuskegee so much, you know? Uh, and there's numerous, numerous war experiments that were run. And some of them were for the testing of, you know, either biowarfare agents are testing our radi re readiness capabilities for quote-unquote biodefense. So I, who, who do you think it just stopped? It, it just oh. the, the, the government says we're not going to do it. After all the gov you know, United States government, among all the other governments in the world, all their abuses, especially during times of war, you know, the, America always, always abides by the Geneva Convention, Okay. We're, we're, we are we are the gym exception in the world, okay? That's what people want you to believe. It is farther from the truth. Our government, you know, is guilty of these crimes, just as most of the governments around the world. And look, you know, I mean, we have to we have to hold multiple positions in our head. And we have to admit that that is true. We have to call out the sins of our own country, among other countries' governments, too, as well. We can't just say for the good of America and its populace, we'll never mention the ilk of what you know the American government or elite have done negatively across the world because it hurts America and American citizens. No, we got we to gotta lay this bear to light. We have to suss this out. We have to. Absolutely. So. And as American uh, citizens, I, I see a lot of debate right now in the uh, political discussion community about uh, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy as far as uh, leadership of other countries go. And I honestly don't know. All I know is that if, if, if my own country, if my own ilk and citizens can't generally do the right thing, you know, all is lost. You know, that's the only thing that I in even hypo, uh, how would you say hypothetically have some control over, but even that's debatable. But as opposed to, you know, is Putin good or bad? Is, uh, is Zelensky good or bad? Gee, good or bad? I don't know. I have no freaking idea. All right. All I can do is comment on, as John just said, uh, actions within our own country. Now, John just mentioned a, uh, a well-known set of, uh, uh, medical experimentations, the Tuskegee experiments, uh, which uh, is quite well known. It, obviously, it uh, almost exclusively uh, was against African-Americans, and there were a lot of uh, uh, fatalities and injuries came out of that, uh, which were experienced, one might say, non-consensually. Uh, now, while we build on that, there are uh, at least hundreds of other similar uh uh, cases of wide-scale 
medical experimentation, or at least people being exposed to new medicines, new therapies, sometimes challenge experiments without consent. And this is just within the United States. Globally, I'm sure it is, it's millions of people have been yep. impacted by this yep. over, over the last century. Uh, and I, this is a, is a couple of really important points on. Now, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm just want to bring it up a level, just a moment here. And it's going to, these are important things to keep in mind as we are discussing tonight, and they will help you a lot. Okay. Uh, and the things that I would suggest to just for the audience to consider one is there is a lot of many people believe that a lot of what's happening right now is driven primarily from a, uh, a population reduction, uh, has a population reduction motive to it. Now, certainly there are groups of people that would love to see other people uh, exist in less numbers. Sometimes that's racial. Sometimes it could be age, faith-based, etc. There's absolutely no doubt. And there's quite a few people that would like to see less of humans, less of humanity. And that's really sad when you think that the greatest thing that humanity can achieve is to just have less of itself. That's a really bad vision. Maybe I sound a little LaRouche in there. Uh, nonetheless, um, I do encourage the audience to consider the fact that and my hypothesis, the big hypothesis, is that a lot of this is based on a long-term vision of advancing the understanding of the human genome, the human condition, how to manipulate it, and how yep. to improve it. And the yep. only, only way to do that is to have people available for research, to, to, for, to mine their, uh, their genetic data, epigenetic data, and, uh, and to do so over a long period of time. Can't do it with computers, aside from maybe mining and sifting through the data with, with uh, big data analytics. Can't do it with humanized mice. You need people. Uh, I, it, it, I, I bring this up right now because many, uh, and I, this, myself was in this camp for a long time as well, saw everything as just uh, the ends is uh, getting rid of people. And eugenics. there's many, many more dimensions to that. Yes, eugenics, which again, was a real thing. Absolutely. Uh, but there's, if they wanted to get rid of people, we'd already be gone. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now, at least not in this dimension. Um, but we're not. We're still here, uh, meaning that uh, there's, there's another motive uh, afoot. My hypothesis, and I think this, again, it, it's a hard readjustment for some people to make. It took me a while to get there, uh, but I just mention it right now because you'll see this theme uh, throughout the discussion uh, tonight. Also, always consider the time of events which we are discussing. We're talking about a historical journey here. The state of the art of technology has changed a lot over the last 120 years plus that the biowarfare research has been ongoing. The genetic research has been ongoing. The focus has changed a lot over those times. Different departments have joined, they've divided. Uh, what people hope to achieve has changed over time. So it's a long and complex journey. It's probably the most complex topic imaginable because it touches on everything and it probably involves uh, bigger winnings than any other topic you can imagine. Nothing could be more powerful than perhaps possibly attaining ability to have massively in, uh, 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 increased lifespans 
uh, and uh, perhaps even intellectual capabilities. Um, that's the most powerful thing uh, one could possibly achieve. And that's what this pursuit is about. Uh, and it touches on banking, computing, networking, uh, obviously, jabination liquid, whatever you want to call it, what the safe word is on this 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 uh, show. So, uh, again, sorry for the little... You can say vaccines on the farm. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. That's good. So, I'm not going to sidetrack too much more there. Uh, again, I apologize for having to put that up front, but I think it's helpful to have that in mind as we uh, go down this journey uh, in this show. John, is there anything you wanted to add to that? I got nothing Actually, else. Uh, if I could jump in here for a second, yeah. too, like, yeah, I, uh, this is also really in keeping with a lot of the stuff that I've been researching of late. And, um, you know, a lot of this, I think, really goes back uh, to the ideology of Sir Francis Galton, uh, who was a cousin of uh, Charles Darwin and uh, in some ways was the father of eugenics, though uh, he was theoretically a proponent more so of what is often referred to as positive eugenics. Uh, which in theory involves improving the human stock as opposed to negative eugenics, which is uh, weeding out uh, the undesirable uh, people from the herd, so to speak. But anyway, um, <clears throat> Galton uh, was really obsessed with the notion of uh, how much nature and nurture played into the development of somebody's personality. I should point out he was also uh, one of the uh, visionaries behind modern personality profiles and intelligence tests as well. But anyway, uh, the whole question of nature versus nurture has uh, vexed scientists ongoing uh, for many years since Galton initially began to ponder this question. Now, going into the early 20th century, the means and funds had finally been procured in one particular institution, i.e. the Rockefeller Foundation, to really pursue this. And uh, the foundation took really a twofold approach uh, in the years between the First and the Second World War. Uh, one hand, they put a ton of money into the social sciences and really created a lot of the modern disciplines, i.e. anthropology, psychology, psychiatry, that kind of thing. And then on the other hand, they uh, also pursued the life sciences vigorously, basically with the ultimate end game of trying to answer the question of nature versus nurture. Now, as far as the life sciences went, which uh, biology is a big part of, the crowning achievement was undeniably the discovery of genetics. This was a thing that the Rockefeller Foundation, probably more than any other institution, had financially supported in this particular kind of research in the interwar years. Later, the Ford Foundation really picked up uh, the baton, if I remember correctly, in the post-war years, but that's another topic. But anyway, uh, this was definitely something that they had been looking at very much. And a lot of it was sort of rooted into, I think as Mark is saying, not necessarily eliminating the population, but altering them. And in the case of the Rockefellers, you know, I mean, they had a fortune that had largely come out of the industrial revolution and specifically from the oil industry. They hadn't made their money on banking. Technology was a very big part of what had led to their fortune. And going into the early 20th century, um, you know, they had some issues. Uh, Standard Oil had been uh, targeted by trust legislation on the one hand. There was also the Ludwell massacre, 
quite a few miners and their families have been murdered by uh, company guards linked to the Rockefeller family in Colorado. That had generated a lot of negative publicity. And essentially, they were looking for a way to create a more, let us say, efficient workforce for the nature of industrial capitalism. And I would say probably now uh, more so for the uh, coming quote unquote digital economy. But yeah, I mean, a lot of this, I think, was um, tied more so into uh, so into you know trying to alter uh, humans for different purposes. I mean, I know this kind of sounds really far out, but I mean, there has been this sort of ongoing process in a variety of fields with this. I mean, the social sciences, a lot of this ties into like the personality profiles, which John and I have looked at a lot, into intelligence mm -hmm. and a lot of this other stuff. Uh, but, you know, there is, I think, an end game to all of this, and it's been going on for a very, very long time now. And this is something that I'm going to try to explore more so on the farm on the coming weeks because it is a really important topic. But anyway, I don't want to get us a two side track, but definitely uh, oh. keep in mind the name Sir Francis Dalton. That's like a big one on all of this uh, that we'll definitely be looking at more and more in the coming uh, weeks and months. Before you move on, uh, that is actually a little bit of a segue. And again, this, we're going we're gonna to try not to get too far off the topic, but this is a, a, a topic. <laughs> It just connects to everything, okay? You can literally go in any direction with this. But regarding the uh, this uh, intrigue with modifying life, uh, there's a great book out there written by uh, Luis Campos, C-A-M-P-O-S. It's called Radium and the Secret of Life. And it is about the history of discovery of and the early use of radium uh, for, uh, for x-rays and this uh, belief that perhaps radioactivity could be used to um, alter alter genetics. Now, a uh, an accurate DNA model was not available when this research was ongoing. But you can imagine uh, the likes of the uh, the Huxleys and other people who are into a little bit of the uh, the black arts, if you will, when radium was a big thing in you know 1910, 1920 were really attracted to this as uh, maybe something which could extend life, which could give people abilities that they didn't have otherwise. The global supply of radium was always very limited. And this eventually uh, uh, tied right into um, uh, the atomic energy, uh, or I should say the Manhattan Project, which was, of course, based upon uh, the uh, enrichment of uh, uranium and plutonium making weapons of mass destruction, et cetera. So you already had this, this cult, this belief that uh, somehow radioactivity could be used, maybe, maybe to alter the human condition or to alter or create or destroy life overall. Uh, some of it was scientific. Some of it was, um, uh, how would you describe Barbara Marks Hubbard type thinking? John? Uh, yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, we have Alice Bailey saying that atomic energy uh, in and of itself was uh, was uh, the savior of mankind, the theosophist Alice Bailey. And then we have Barbara Marks Hubbard, 
where set, you know, it says if the selfish were to inherit the evolutionary capacities, the eternal aspects of Christ's ability. So if we're going to be little gods, a doctrine of little, little G, if we're going to be like gods, okay, not made in the image of God, but actually have the powers of God, according to Barmar's Harvard. And of course, Lestat and, and, uh, and um, I and, and, and uh, Recluse have done an excellent show on Barmar's Hubbard. She mentions these things. If we're, these, these are godlike abilities, according to Barmar's Hubbard, okay? Uh, nuclear energy, biotechnology, longevity, self-replicating machines, the power to build new worlds, etc. cetera. Uh, well, I mean, the Bible says that if you're going to be Christ-like, because we're not little gods, but we are made in God's image, uh, you know, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as thyself. Uh, it's not supposed to be nuclear energy, biotechnology, longevity, transhumanism, blah, 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 futurism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, I mean, these people, uh, you know, they, 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 they worship. They worship this occult science. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it, I've never seen anything like it. You know, I mean, you don't hear most people in the conspiracy research community ever discuss this stuff. I never heard it. Uh, until I started digging into it myself. Now you could say it's probably you could say it could be the Dunning Kruger effect. Now I'm just paying attention to it. Uh, but I mean it's there, it's everywhere, you know. And she mentioned biotechnology, and she, they also she also discussed how messenger RNA has spiritual properties to it. Yeah, Barbara Herbert didn't happy birthday planet Earth. So you know, these people they they worship these occult technologies and these occult sciences and and you know, and in positive eugenics, euphenics, if you want to give it a new name, yep. uh, uh, atomic energy, uh, gain of function testing, uh, all of that could be lumped into those occult sciences. The study of biological weapons or these uh, these sciences overall does, as we've just discussed, tie into genetics. Uh, what are what uh, what do you would you call? Uh, uh, alterations negatively of the genome, cancers. <laughs> what causes cancers? <laughs> One thing potentially, oh, should say, will cause at high levels, radiation. Uh, the topic of uh, weapons of mass destruction, the Manhattan Project, radiation, cancers, genetics, uh, biological weapons, these are all deeply connected. And one of the things that has allowed uh, this research to grow, to attain uh, unimaginable levels of funding and unlimited confidentiality is the fact that uh, biological weapons are considered weapons of mass destruction. Hence, they are given the top-level clearances, the same as the, the atomic weapons. Not going to go into my thoughts about that just now. <laughs> I want to win over a few more people before we go there, before we go the distance. But... Uh, Given this uh, belief that uh, some technologies are so dangerous, they are so dangerous that only a few people should be allowed to really understand how they work because they're so dangerous that life on Earth could literally come to an end if this not if this knowledge was shared. And you and and what could possibly go wrong when science goes from something which was at least before uh, the atomic weapon mostly collaborative. It certainly wasn't always right. It was far from always right. But for the most part, there was a, a pretty fair amount of collaboration. There was never, there weren't many things that were considered so dangerous that only a few people could know them because life on earth depended upon keeping it secretive. And what happened? Well, 
here we have, uh, we have a virus cancer program. We have viruses that can cause or cure cancers. We have uh, nations potentially subjecting their entire populations to medical experimentation to get credit with the World Bank. I mean, things just go up. Things have reached the absurd level because of what has been allowed behind uh, uh, unlimited confidentiality classification and unlimited budgets. It's uh, I'm not a big fan of it. Let's just put it that way because of what it has uh, led to. None, none, none dare call modern uh, science occult science. There you go, Ricos. All right. Do you guys have any more to uh, add to the history of the U.S. biodefense program? Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, mean, a couple I things. Mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess I, I, I guess I could briefly, uh, I guess I could briefly discuss Plum Island and Lab Two Fifty Seven and yeah. go more in depth into it. Um, uh, and then I'll talk. Actually, and then I get. I think we have to. I think I have a couple things to cover before that. Um, yeah, go for it, okay. if you okay, don't mind if you don't mind yeah go for uh, it i would actually recommend going to the uh, the national institutes of health uh archive uh, history.nih.gov and is actually a shockingly accurate and deep description of the uh of the history of the national institutes of health the nih why do we bring that up we're talking about bioweapons we're not talking about keeping people safe from diseases and so on um, some may see it as a recent U-turn that the, uh, that the military is so concerned now about pandemics, et cetera. Well, the early funding of the National Institutes of Health was mostly due to uh, military and security concerns going all the way back to the set late 1700s, even in the United States and the, uh, the 1800s. Uh, the funding has grown slowly over time. Uh, or most of the early hospitals were either in New York City and then eventually moved to Washington, D.C. around 1902. Uh, there's the Biologics Control Act. Uh, it was a piece of legislation in 1902. Uh, it initially started uh, having consequences for what they call the hygienic laboratory uh, but that eventually was renamed to something called uh, the Food and Drug Administration uh, years later, it, we can focus on things. I mean, we're going to review things at a high level, such as how the bio, what was no, once known as the Chemical and Biological Weapons Research Program was sort of became the modern day National Cancers Institute. That's uh, when some people suggest that Nixon got rid of the bio warfare program, but not really. Hard to tell exactly where his mind was with that. He might have been trying to, but uh, as we know, the president is not exactly the most powerful person in the United States. That's just what they want us to think. Uh, but it goes back a long, long way. And the funding, and, and this is why this program is so much bigger than anyone knows, because it includes the health institutes, which include the National Institute of Allergies, Infectious Diseases. All there's tons of subprograms within the NIH, within the CDC, within the FDA, uh, which which are based on protecting us against bioterrorism and pandemics and so on. There's more programs within DARPA and the United States military that protect us against pathogens and biological warfare. There's more programs in the Department of Homeland Security and so on and so forth. And then there's the NGOs. And when it adds up, you realize very quickly that the, uh, the space program is tiny compared to what's been spent on this type of stuff uh, and, uh, and HIV research and, and so on and so forth over the last hundred years. Uh, 
it really is. You'll eventually realize that one of the main motivations uh, for uh, for opening up the internet um, or, or networking the internet in the in the 1970s was to get enough compute and storage capacity to be able to do uh, to be able to do a, a genetic work. They they couldn't actually do. Uh, you know, full DNA sequences within any one of the uh, the major colleges like Stanford or so on and so forth. It just connects to everything. And so many things have been motivated by this. So without getting too much into the details of this, uh, I just really wanted to say that this does extend far back in time. It didn't just start in World War II. It didn't start when Nixon was unable to uh, to close the doors of the program in 1969. And when they had the international conventions on uh, on biological weapons uh, control, I forget what the formal name of it was, and and it didn't just start uh, with uh, the anthrax letters in two thousand one. We'll have more on that later. Uh, it goes back quite a ways, and it's just been getting larger and larger uh, over time. I would actually, I actually advocate the, uh, uh, I, I promote the hypothesis that. Even the uh, uh, much of the atomic weapons program was actually about finding ways to do more genetic research under the guise of, uh, you know, uh, cancers, weapons of mass destruction, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and even the Cold War uh, has a lot of connections to this. Yes, Russia did have what has been described by many as a massive biological weapons program, which was unveiled in Kazakhstan in the uh, the 1990s, but was it really? Or was the United States simply trying to find a way to wash all of its technology, which had previously been behind closed doors, to rinse it, if you will, and to reintroduce it to the world as, oh, it was Soviet technology. Yeah, I know that we've had billions and billions of dollars of investment, but I, apparently nothing ever succeeded until we found it in this old rusty laboratory <laughs> in Kazakhstan. Uh, hence, uh, you know, relabeling, you know, making use, making use of the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, does that make me a Russian propagandist or a, a Putin puppet, John? I don't know. I'm just putting that out there. Uh, that uh, there's a lot we don't know, and you need to be open to those. Uh, That's what uh, they say. Possibilities. Mark, if, you, if you say anything negative about the United States of America, you're a Russian agent. So, <laughs> if I can just interject for a second, too, it's just it's really fascinating because I mean, you know, as John knows, I'm generally skeptical about the degree the, the degree of uh, collaboration between the rival powers. Uh, but it really seems like in the case of a lot of this bio research, there has been a lot of overlap. I mean, especially in the post-Cold War uh, years, but as we'll probably talk about here in a little bit, even like by the 1980s, you know, you can kind of see the transference of some of this technology through these various regimes uh, using kind of uh, vassals and proxy nations and so forth. It's it's really fascinating. It does seem like uh, bioweapon research is the one, one of the few things everybody uh, kind of is in agreement uh, to collaborate on. Uh, I kind of suspect on some level it's maybe a bit of a suicide pact or something. Everybody in theory knows uh, what the, uh, the really deadly research is because everybody's cards are on the table, at least in theory. So who knows? But anyway, uh, back to you, Mark. 
Uh, oh, that's a uh, that's a, a a good kickoff. Uh, uh, yes, um, it's it's helpful to re to consider looking at the world as not just uh, the list of two hundred countries competing with each other. There's divisions within countries that compete over this technology. There's agents within agents. Um, I believe the Department of Homeland Security and the Pentagon are are more at war with each other than they are with any other country right now. And that has been something that was brewing uh, and definitely uh, boiled over uh, starting with 9-11. And it's very seldom appreciated. Uh, it's just viewed as, oh, there's a deep state, all right? There's deep state and they're all doing their deep state stuff and they go to their deep state parties and they all hang out and they just, it's the deep staters versus the everyday Joe and Jane. And not really. <laughs> there's so much power, uh, potentially, right? Uh, I think that the state of the technology is probably not nearly as advanced as we are sometimes fear, but hypothetically, Great. hypothetically, uh, if this technology is ever mastered, it is the most powerful thing uh, one could imagine in, in the in the physical realm. Um, so is everyone, it, you just get, a couple people are going to pursue it and then everyone else is just going to kick back and, and wait? No. So there's divisions within countries. There's organizations that include multiple countries. Um, there's probably different spins on it, uh, but, uh, while, uh, you know, Russia and China may have had a different approach there, it's foolish to think that the, uh, intelligence agencies and the governments within those countries, uh, are saying, you know what, this stuff just seems a little too risky and we're just old school. We're just going to do it the old way. You know, people start to romanticize this and that's nonsense. Uh, uh John, you- I got yeah. I mean, I got yeah. I, I agree, um, with with both of y'all. Uh, I mean, I you know look at the world order a little bit differently than Recluse does, and that I believe mostly they all work together. Um, but I, they definitely when you really dig into to bio defense, bio warfare, they do seem to co- cooperate a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, and so that might be because they are testing these agents and how they affect a person's genetic expression in the form of epigenetics to see what would. Well, I mean, I think also just sort of going back to pragmatism. I mean, again, you know, I uh, my hypothesis is correct that uh, why the Rockefellers really got the ball rolling on a lot of this stuff massively in the period in between the wars. I mean, this was, you know, at a time the Soviet revolution had broken out shortly after the end of the first world war, the labor movement was extremely militant. There was a lot of fear. I mean, this is sort of overlooked now. I mean, among the elite in that era that there could be uh, a genuine, you know, kind of workers uprising or something to that effect in multiple countries and uh, I think there was a sense that uh, repression alone through physical violence was starting to, you know, wear thin. Uh, you know, there was only so much that you could really do with the Pinkerton guards and that kind of thing. 
a new approach was needed. It was, you know, I think ultimately what I'm kind of saying here, driven by a, uh, a desire to discover a new form of social control and sort of going into the 21st century. I mean, I think that to some extent, it makes sense that on that uh, level that many countries would see value in collaborating with one another in this process. I mean, I think especially, um, you know, going into the 21st century and then the years after 2008 in the financial crisis, uh, I mean, obviously, in the aftermath of that, you had the Arab Springs, you had Occupy, the Anonymous Movement, just all of this other stuff going on. And while uh, that was briefly pacified, you know, I mean, there really has been, I mean, again, another upswing of social unrest. You have the Yellow Vest Movement in France. You have a lot of just global instability in multiple countries. So the point being, uh, you know, the elite in I mean, China, you know, for instance, has the Uyghurs, you know, and uh, just all kinds of other stuff. The point being, you know, the elites in a lot of these countries, uh, they need a new way to uh, try to uh, pacify the domestic populations. So I think that that is a big part of this research is, you know, why you see a lot of uh, collaboration in this uh, with the uh, you know, kind of IT revolution, where there is so many uh, negative aspects of it. I mean, I do think that it's also uh, made it much more difficult for the traditional means of social control, you know, in the US, I mean, with the velvet glove, you know, mass media, legacy media, that kind of thing. I mean, the effectiveness of this kind of stuff is worn down. Uh, China, I mean, has tried uh, higher standards of living combined with a lot of authoritarian, uh, you know, social practices. But again, uh, people get, you know, access to what the rest of the world is like through media, through the Internet and that kind of thing so much more easy nowadays. I just think that realistically, uh, you know, they're going to have to look for something else. And a lot of these governments have a uh, shared interest in collaborating on this kind of uh, research to ensure that they at a minimum stay in power in the respective countries. Uh, so I think there is sort of that component as well. Absolutely, it does. Uh, it can be used to uh, influence populations, to uh, influence uh, uh, elections, uh, geopolitics, uh, behavior. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so the couple things, one, we're, we're going to get into eugenics, uh, something called uh, epigenetics in a moment, because it does tie into uh, another motivation of, uh, of setting up social controls and monitoring. But uh, one comment about uh, the, uh, the Rockefellers and the Rockefeller Institute plays heavily uh, into this, uh, into this history. And we'll have some more historical notes later on as well. But there's a, uh, the Rockefellers were not the only wealthy, mega wealthy family, like absurdly yeah, wealthy yeah, family. Absolutely. And the other one, it was Carnegie. And the Carnegie Institute is very seldom spoken of in this context. Um, now, uh, later on, we'll talk about a uh, really important, prominent uh, pathologist, bacteriologist, Dr. Joshua Lederberg who uh, for several years was the president of the uh, Rockefeller Institute starting 1979 to 1990 or so, 1992. But uh, his best friend, David Hamburg, whose daughter, Margaret Hamburg, actually was the FDA director under President Obama. 
um, was the uh, director of the Carnegie Institute, the Carnegie Corporation. Now, the Carnegie Corporation also uh, has a large investment in, uh, in uh, genetics research. Very not, it's just not well appreciated. Um, David Hamburg was on a first name basis with, uh, with uh, Gorbachev and was a big part of working directly with Russia during their, both their nuclear and biological weapon disarmament in the 1980s and the 1990s. And this, and the, and the Carnegie Institute almost gets a complete pass uh, as far as um, any type of uh, analysis here. There's a very famous photo of, uh, it was uh, a photo that was taken in, uh, I think it was November of 2001 in Manhattan. Uh, it's famous because it has, uh, it has Dr. Anthony Fauci at this event. Uh, it has uh, uh, famous news correspondents like um, uh, Barbara Walters there. Ted Turner is there. Uh, the fellow of, uh, I forget his last, uh, first name Parsons is there. Bill Gates Sr. is there. Um, Ted Koppel. Uh, and then there's uh, uh, several uh, elderly women who are responsible for funding things like the uh, uh, the, uh, the the Diamond uh, AIDS Research Center um, uh, in New York City. Uh, but what's missed is the location of that was at the Carnegie Institute. It's not a Rockefeller Institute. Um, and just to add a little bit more speculation uh, here is there were several, I, I would suggest, somewhat curious uh, early passings of key Rockefeller family members starting with Nelson Rockefeller and that was at 1978, 1979 or so. Yeah, that's a good uh, All point. the way to, to the, uh, it was like a lieutenant governor in Arkansas. Um, it was like two or three. Again, not that the Rockefellers ran out of money or power, uh, but there might be a dynamic of competitiveness between the two. Both certainly want to have a monopoly of this, of this technology, of this research, but I doubt one is just going to kick back, right, and be and just be willing to share it. So again, there's probably a competitive nature to it. And if you look at the, uh, I don't really get onto the cue boards or you know any of that, whatever Chan stuff. I know it sounds, I sound like a uh, total uh, idiot uh, talking like that. I just don't go on those boards very often. Uh, but when I was a Q follower, which I was for about, uh, I don't know what we say, John, about 10 months or so. I was kind of did that Q train nonsense. Uh, yes. Yes. And yeah. then you came uh, out against the Q operation and got uh, heavily. Hit I was learning. It. I was learning. I noticed you could go full in with evil Rockefeller, probably deserving. So no one ever mentioned Carnegie, no one, which I didn't notice until after I sort of came out the other side, which an interesting data point uh, when Donald Trump's mother first came to the United States. I don't think she was even 20 years old. She came, she landed in Manhattan and within her first week, she became one of the 20 maids at the, at the, uh, at the, for the widow of Andrew Carnegie. It's like, huh? <laughs> so there's a little something interesting there that uh, very few people have, uh, have, uh, I think not enough people have looked into. I wish I had more time to get into that topic uh, myself. Uh, uh, John, I think you should review the topic of epigenetics for us. It may seem like a U-turn, but again, I think it's a big part of helping explain where we're, we might be going with all of these social controls and, so, and, uh, and, and, and monitoring and biosurveillance. Yeah, epigenetics, just modifying the way uh, one's genes are expressed 
uh, through environment, chemicals, diet, uh, anything. I mean, it could be from exposure to non-native EMF. Uh, it could be from, uh, you know, how clean the food or water that you're ingesting are. Um, it pretty much just, you know, changes uh, the ways in which the genes are, are expressed, whether they're turned on or, or turned off. Um, you know, for example, you could, uh, I guess, real quick gene is catch-all methyltransferase or COMT, uh, which produces the COMT enzyme uh, that degrades dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Uh, so a person who has a full polymorphism to COMT, like myself, uh, we produce... Um, less of this enzyme. So we tend to have more um, uh, circulating dopamine, uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. So it tends to make you less depressed, more happy, but more prone to anxiety um, instead of depression. Um, and, uh, you know, there's certain things that you can, it can epigenetically change the expression of the comp gene uh, and a reduction of the comp enzyme production, for example. So you can do that with some certain supplements or certain uh, foods or even heavy metals, for example, uh, or, or metals, uh, mercury uh, can reduce the functionality of, of the COMT enzyme uh, or the way that uh, COMT uh, is uh, genetically expressed. Uh, John or, is trying to say, <laughs> yeah, what or, John or, is trying to say is that your DNA is your base code, uh, which as a massive multicellular organism with a copy of your code in each cell, it's very tricky to change all of the code and all of the cells in a very short period of time. It's yes. very difficult to do that. But while your DNA may be somewhat inflexible, how your DNA, let's just say in a computer analogy, how your DNA runs can be influenced by epigenetic factors, uh, which include some things which you can't change, like your age, uh, but also your diet, where you live. Even things like uh, like air pressure. Uh, what do you do for a living? How well do you sleep? Uh, where did your food come from? You smoke you know? cigarettes. You, you smoke cigarettes in your mouth. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yes. There's even uh, a research that shows uh, that the levels of stress of your parents and even your grandparents can have impacts on how uh, their uh, their their offspring generations uh, from there express uh, actually express proteins. There and which uh, connecting it to COVID-19, uh, even the phrase the spike protein is in and of itself a little bit of a misunderstanding. And it doesn't show the fact that uh, we all uh, express proteins uh, in many different ways based upon our gender, based upon our race, our age, our health, whether or not we smoke, etc. There could be hundreds or thousands of microscopic different variants of the spike protein, little things like just folded a little bit differently, the ratio at which the, the ribbon gets spewed out of the, uh, uh, the cells, whether or not they're consequential differences or not, we're not really sure. But what this means is that uh, there's the possibility to have a huge influence on, on humans uh, without actually changing their DNA. Uh, by just understanding what the inputs are and what the outputs will be. Um, and this is in addition to just what the code, the, the DNA code itself is, which we also, we barely understand it, right? We, I mean, yeah, we, we have a dump, we have a dump of the data. We know how many positions there are. 
but that's it. It's kind of like saying that you understand how Unix works by having uh, the binary image file. Like, uh, you could, not you really. could almost say we could understand really. epi epigen you could almost say we could understand epigenetics more than the entire human genome itself to some degree. You could. Uh, you could. So, so I, I mean, so yeah, thank you for trying to thank you for not trying. Thank you for simplifying that better than what I was trying to get across myself because I was being a little bit too, too technical there. Uh, I didn't mean to yeah. rob the audience of the details. Listen to no, John's no, 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 show, no, no, fix no, your no, gut. No, he will no, he will no. dump out the details, everyone. If you you can go there. But yeah, but epigenetically, for example, for someone like me, if I drink a lot of green tea, which got ECG, ECG, EGCG in it, or you know, take courses in supplements, you know, or let's say I broke a few CFL light bulbs in my house and started getting mercury burden. Uh, I would uh, produce less COMT enzyme, and in the process, I'd have more dopamine and epinephrine and norepinephrine going through my body than normal. And you know, epigenetically, it would influence me, and I would be more anxious and more nervous uh, because there's more you know adrenaline going through me, uh, which activates the sympathetic nervous system to have the fight or flight response. So you know, it does it's not changing my 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 comp gene per se. It's just changing how it's expressed and how the enzyme is being produced um, or even just changing some instances, just changing the production of the enzyme itself, um, yes. which is not necessarily epigenetics in that regard. Uh, but so so it's not, you know, changing the gene. It's not changing your DNA. It's just changing how those genes are expressed. Yes. Um, and, and, and see, then that's e <clears throat> way, way easier to do. Yes. Uh, then changing one's, you know, DNA in and of itself that we really, truly don't understand uh, the entire. I mean, that's why the uh, you, we could sit here and speculate all day why the Human Genome Project was a failure. But I think it's just too much data. I mean, I, I, I myself, you know, so I believe, you know, I'm Christian. You know, I, I believe we were created. Therefore, I don't think we'd ever be able to find exactly. Uh, the massive amounts of data that God had, you know, designed, you know, data as far as, you know, the, the human genome. Um, but we can, you know, learn more of how to influence, especially when you get into experimentalism, as you've talked, Mark, and running all these different data uh, through mass experimentation, uh, you can kind of see then how things are, are, are ran. Uh, and you could say that that it's being done with the uh, biodefense slash biowarfare uh, and, and you know, so I, I, you, do you want to talk about Plum Island now? Uh, Steve? yeah, uh, just one more thing in that. Another big thing, of course, would be vaccines, what vaccines people take, uh, and when they take them, of course, you know, things like surgeries and so on. Uh, uh but vaccines would also play a big part, uh, in, uh, you would want to track that and, and building on what John just said here. Uh, many see this, uh, they, they think of this as a test, right? They want to see what the, what the, what the test does, what the, the new vaccine technology does, as if that's going to provide the answer. Uh, and then separately, it's viewed as, oh, well, there's all this biosurveillance because they want to enforce communism and socialism. Certainly, I'm sure there's quite a few people that are dreaming about doing that right now, but they don't view the two together. Uh, ultimately, your diet, your vaccines, uh, your ability to have proper relationships with people are going to impact your behavior and your success and your happiness. So you need to monitor all of these, all of, as much as possible, all the data that you can grab 
what people do or don't do, how they do it, their success, their demise, etc., and factor that in over a long period of time, over a diverse population. If you just monitor one population with a limited genetic diversity, such as, let's just say, Japan, you're not going to learn the full set of all the inputs and all the potential outputs. I think that this, uh, this new technology, this new vaccine technology, and, and the mRNA one might not be it, but it will probably be another one. Uh, certainly the game's not over if the, if the mRNA one itself fails, uh, is a long-term uh, strategy. It is a long-term commitment. It's a platform for providing uh, 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 vaccination, uh, if you will. Um, yeah, so uh, I think... Uh, uh, what John just mentioned now is uh, Plum Island, which is a, a research facility uh, in the United States. And John, could you provide an introduction to us for Plum Island and why it matters historically? Yeah, uh, I could do that. Um, uh, so uh, Plum Island was a, a was a, uh, island off the coast of New York State. I'll actually cut it close to New York City. Um, and uh, it, it there was a uh, military base uh, that was put on Plum Island, I think, slightly before 1900. So it's called Fort Terry. Um, and then um, so the, later, um, the, the military base in of, of itself um, was kind of at least parts of it was going through, when it was claimed to be deactivated. You know, parts of Fort Terry was being deactivated uh, throughout World War II. Um, the United States Army Chemical Corps uh, took over the facility, I think it was 1952, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, they started using it for what they claimed to be for biodefense or, or anti-animal biological warfare uh, research. Um, and so they added a laboratory uh, to um the two uh, fort terry or you know plum island uh which would be called building 257 or later would be known as lab 257 um and so um you know the united states department of agriculture uh would later be whom lab 257 was put under uh because they claimed all the research there was going for biodefense where they were studying the effects, for example, of the foot and mouth disease virus uh, on, um, on animals, uh, primarily cloven hooved animals like cows, even though humans can get foot and mouth disease. However, uh, human foot and mouth disease tends to be rare, tends to be kind of a, 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 um, a limited, um, uh, and, and also, if I remember correctly, human uh, foot and mouth disease uh, belongs to the uh, Picornoviridae family uh, and is distinct from, um, uh, there's different, I guess you could say there's different uh, foot and mouth disease viruses, um, but human foot and mouth disease virus can also co claim co-infect uh, cl cloven hoof animals as well. Uh, but so they claimed that they were studying that because they were afraid that a foot and mouth disease was a uh, virus was um, uh, turned into viral warfare by other countries uh, that it would destroy and decimate the 
livestock population of the United States of America would be detrimental to the food supply. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you would think it would be in a country's best interest to study the effects of such, you know, pathogens and in the hope that you could counteract the pathogens with some sort of medication, right? Like that makes sense. But it wasn't what they were only studying, okay? They were studying... Uh, uh, for example, um, well, I guess we'll talk about two main ones. Uh, the first one I'd like to talk about, um, is, um, gain of functioning, my belief of, um, the spirochete gram negative bacteria, Borella, uh, Burger, uh, I can never pronounce it properly, uh, Burgadorfi. Yes. Uh, trying to pronounce it correctly. Um, and so, um, most uh which was named if i remember correctly after willie bergedorfer uh, uh bergdorfer was, yes. yes swiss scientist correct yes yes so he um oh, but anyway to get that so um there have been instances of lyme disease like infections i have to make this known even the great stephen booner who if anybody who suffers from product lyme or lyme disease needs to read uh booner's book healing lyme on Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease. Uh, there are mentions of instances of Lyme disease-like infections done, you know, spirochete-like bacterial infections, Borrelia-like infections before what was, you know, happened in Lyme, Connecticut. And I'm going to get to that in a minute, okay? But however, my belief is, is that there, there has been shown that these specific Borrelia um, that are found in deer tick, okay, they were gain of function to most bacteria either need iron for survival, uh, like human beings, we need iron to produce uh, hemoglobin or red blood cells and oxygenation, um, or sulfur. Um, there are sulfur using bacteria, uh, but very few bacteria in nature require manganese. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I may, um, uh, yeah. Just review uh, uh, Borrelia spirochete similarities to, to to syphilis. Yeah, spirochete. I mean, syphilis is caused is a spirochete disorder, um, and it, so but they're it, bacterias. Uh, yes, yes, these are bacterial correct. infections. Yeah, yes, yes, and they're long term. Um, you know, uh, syphilis is long term before it turns into neurosyphilis, and you also have neurolime, and they kind of have very similar. Very similar pathologies and, and, and uh, uh, comorbidities uh, associate with them. Uh, so, I mean, you when you have a spirochete, you know, causing massive amounts of inflammation in your brain from uh, uh, produced uh, gram-negative endotoxins or toxins that bacteria produce, uh, and uh, you know, shuts down the mitochondria of the brain. Uh, yeah, you're gonna gonna expect what you're gonna see, which is kind of like what you see in syphilis patients, where kind of almost looks like holes are in the brain. All right, so many people with chronic Lyme disease, they get Lyme rage. Uh, they get uh, severe depression, uh, anxiety. If they have neurolime, it's horrific. Um, but yeah, so it's my belief. Uh, and you know, Lab Two Fifty Seven. There's a book written by uh, Carol. Uh, of course, Carol was he the lawyer of Cuomo's father, right? Uh, I don't know. He he yeah, uh, yeah, was yeah, a yeah. lawyer. He was, yeah, he yeah. was a lawyer for Cuomo's father. Um, who, who was who was Cuomo's? 
Mara, do you remember, or, or Stephen, do you remember Andrew Cuomo's, uh, what was his father's name? Um, it's interesting because Carol Cuomo, wrote this. Former governor. So Mario Cuomo actually gives an excerpt on the book, uh, you know, uh, calling it, a, it was like carefully researched uh, expose of a potential catastrophe or something like that. So that was interesting. I'm not going to say that Carol's incorrect in his notions. I'm just going to say it's quite interesting that, you know, he was lawyer for Mario Cuomo and Mario Cuomo wrote <laughs> uh, a little blurb on, you know, I'm, I'm just saying it's a little weird. All right. But I and Carol uh, I was, was a one and done. It was a one and done book. I don't think he yes. wrote any other books. I don't think so. Uh, he's I, he hasn't he's not available for interviews. After having done that book in 2003, I think is when it came out. Yes. Uh, and who knows what the motivation behind it was. Uh, all, I, all, all, all I will say is that it's just it's just odd that just before 9-11, uh, Hillary Clinton became senator of the yeah. state of New York. And, and right after 9-11, like, uh, uh, you know, the the the. the the buildings hadn't even fallen, and she was already like, you know what? We should create a Department of Homeland Security and take over Plum Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to get to that. Uh, okay, but, sorry. But, 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 you know, you're right. So, uh, you know, I believe that gain-of-function of Boreal Burgdorfi uh, happened, you know, uh, at, at, it became more virulent. I think it became more virulent. And uh, somehow it managed uh, a tick, uh, managed to, to hop a ride on a bird, uh um to uh, uh uh old lyme connecticut um and chronic lyme disease uh was initially there was a cluster of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis cases that have never seen been seen before in history okay and all of a sudden they really started researching very hard what was going on around an old lyme connecticut and uh, sure enough, all of a sudden they had a new disease, you know, new condition or disease that popped up just magically, and they decided to call it Lyme disease. Okay, so it's not that Borrelia infections probably didn't exist beforehand in this case, but the severity of this specific gain of function pathogen that is extremely hardy. Okay, extremely virulent, requires manganese for survival over iron. Okay, it just happened to crop up this cases. And old like Connecticut ain't is a hop, a skip, and a jump away from Plum Island. All right, it ain't too far. Okay, it ain't like it's 300 miles away, 500 miles away. You know, you know, it, it's quite close. You can go check it on a map. All right. So that happened as far as a cluster of cases, of, if I remember correctly, was it 1975? Uh, yes, yeah, 74, 75. And a cluster uh, similar to that also started at another location on the island of Long Island, which is the oh. other next closest point on the other there side. There you go. Coincidentally Coinc enough. Coincidence, yes. So now we have all of a sudden this, you know, it's like the increased cases of diagnosis of autism. It's just because diagnostic methods got better. So because diagnostic got, methods got better, supposedly they discovered juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and uh, these young youths, sadly. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's chronic Lyme, you know, so I believe it's gain of function. I believe that it came from Plum Island. 
I don't think it was for any type of quote unquote bio defense. It was likely for bio warfare, even though, as you know, Recluse has mentioned and other people previously mentioned, supposedly Richard Nixon outlawed this type of research, even for bio defense. But give me a break. Okay. Um, and so we, that's that's Lyme disease. Okay. Chronic Lyme. Chronic Lyme is a, in my opinion, and I would assume that Mark would agree with me on this, was gain of function from Plum Island. Okay, from from Lab 257. Carol makes that argument too as well. Okay, and so another disease also is West Nile virus. Now somehow I just don't understand this, Mark. I don't understand world logistics or whatever. Somehow a mosquito, a little tiny little mosquito, made it on a cargo ship from Africa and somehow managed to survive the transport time. Okay, and then got released. In New York City in 1999, right? Or am I misremembering? Okay. Well, it's 1999 or perhaps uh, a, a passenger in, in Israel or Egypt. You know, they were heading to New York City. And just before they got on the plane in the airport terminal, they got bit by a mosquito that had West Nile virus. Ah. They got on the plane. They enjoyed their meal. They got off the plane in New York City. Then another mosquito bit them. And then that mosquito carried the West Nile on to, you know, other birds and people in 1999. Because, as they say, West Nile virus was never in the Northern Hemisphere, something like that. Or was it Northern Hemisphere or in the Americas? I forget which way they oriented. I was about to say that's true, right? That's true. That's what they say. That's what they say. But imagine... Out of all the places in the world, all the places. Now, I know New York City is a largest, one of the largest cities in the world, if not the largest city being population. Some people say Mexico City. You can go back and forth on it. But. Oh, uh, actually, not even close. There's other cities that just blow it away. Oh, Sao yeah, Paulo. True. I mean, yeah, uh, is, New York City is like a suburb. <laughs> but, but you Anyways. know, so so I guess I spent a lot of time since I've checked my world population. But New York City has a lot of people living there, okay? It does, yeah. So, so, but, but, but of all the places in all the world that it shows up in the Northern Hemisphere on, it shows up in New York City. If I remember correctly, it shows up in Long Island, right? Well, uh, oddly enough, there were about uh, 20 or 30 horses that had uh, horrible cases of encephalitis right around the same time. Um, And some horse farms that were about three miles as far as the bird flies from Plum Island. Uh, there's some pretty uh, expensive estates uh, out. I mean, the Hamptons, for, it, for those of you who have ever heard the word the Hamptons, the Hamptons is one of the most expensive places to live, probably, possibly among in the world, not the most, but among the most. And it's a very expensive area out towards the uh, southern coast, the uh, east end of the island of Long Island, which hosts on the west side two parts of New York City, boroughs of Queens and uh, Brooklyn. So it is was said that uh, now they don't talk about the horses that got sick at that time too much with the encephalitis, which could have potentially been caused by a mosquito or a, a born uh, uh, vectored uh, uh, pathogen. What they do talk about, though, is there were about five people that got uh, an extreme cases of encephalitis. And there were a few deaths in New York City in late summer of 1999. Uh, and also there were some birds which were found uh, to be uh, found dead in the Bronx Zoo um, of New York City. Also in the late summer of 1999. 
Now, those birds were found by a, uh, a Dr. Tracy McNamara, who uh, several years earlier actually worked as uh, an intern at Plum Island. Not saying that there's any relation, but she found some birds and one was a flamingo and the other was uh, symbolically a bald eagle uh, that had uh, that was talons up. And uh, they sent it in for testing. And sure enough, uh, Ian Lipkin was available for the call and found West Nile virus uh, uh, in those birds. And West Nile virus was also said to have been, at least based upon symptoms, the reason for another few deaths in New York City. Now, this caused uh, a panic. I did a reading of a, of a low distribution book called uh, West Nile Story, which was written in year 2000 or 2001. You can find that on my Houstonic.live channel. Uh, you can read the whole thing yourself in two hours. The PDF is freely available. And there's a lot of connections between what happened in that West Nile incident and 9-11. And as time goes on, you'll eventually see that a lot of the same characters are still involved. And even the response to coronavirus. We're getting a little bit off, uh, off tangent here, but West Nile virus is another one of those things where potentially could have been related to something that happened at Plum Island. Uh, maybe the New York thing was a cover-up. We'll never know. What we do know is that uh, the uh, <laughs> the freezers were turned off uh, on Plum Island for a little while in early summer of uh, 1999 because of uh, 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 servicing of their electrical grid. I don't have hard documentation of that, but it has uh, been repeated in enough and enough different places that I think that there is some truth to that. Uh, but it was spun into, well, this is the consequence of globalization. And of course, it means that uh, Saddam Hussein probably has some West Nile virus that he could be weaponizing, meaning that we should be concerned about a bioterror event in the future in a large U.S. metropolitan area like New York City. Hmm. One of something like that would happen. So it was a little bit of a foreshadowing event as well as possibly also uh, a lab containment issue. Now, again, we don't know. I can't tell you for sure if it was West Nile virus or not. I wouldn't be able to. I don't have the capabilities. I'm not a virologist. I can't identify this stuff. All I can do is repeat that it was said to be West Nile virus. Uh, but what I can also uh, offer to you is uh, we mentioned the historical aspect of this. They say that they, they, the proof that West Nile virus definitely came in on a plane right, is that it was never in North America before then. Well, that's not true. Uh, and you can find the research papers that came out of the Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, even Rockefeller funding as far back as the mid-1940s to 1952, where uh, several researchers and scientists at the Sloan Kettering were quite literally injecting West Nile virus into prisoners uh, and into some disabled population in the United States to see if they could use it to cause cancers, to cause tumors, or possibly even cure tumors or and or cancers uh, in the population, sometimes even without their knowledge or consent of what they are being subjected to. Again, always factoring the time, who the heck knows what the what it was? How, did, how could they have even filtered out West Nile virus from everything else that would come out of a sample? I have no idea. I'm not saying it was West Nile virus, but what I can tell you is the research paper state 
unambiguously that they believed they were literally injecting people with West Nile virus and the only samples into the population. Some of those prisoners obviously got set free uh, at some point, presumably, and samples were kept. And those samples were kept at Yale University in Connecticut. And uh, it was uh, Robert Shope who, uh, who had access to those samples. It was in his refrigerator. And his roommate was Roger, Dr. Roger Breeze. And Dr. Roger Breeze became the director of Plum Island, story director in the 1980s and 1990s, who be, was the boss of Tracy McNamara, who did find those dead birds in 1999. So you don't, guys don't have to write that down, but we're trying to convince you. And we, we have evidence for all of this stuff. We're not just making crap up here. Document all this stuff. We save evidence offline, back it up, archive it before we talk, We've read the books done the best research that we possibly can, that there is a lot of connections to this stuff, a lot of dirty things. And um, uh, the, uh, the Plum Island story is, is it's important. The, uh, the use of the, the fact that it was used as part of the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. We want to protect our crops. We want to protect our corn, our tomatoes, our, we want to have healthy, you know, meats to eat. So what do we do? We invest uh, in uh, making sure that we are not subject to uh, loss of our food supply from, uh, from disease, from climatic events, or, or even uh, a, a, bio a bio attack, because bio, uh, biological warfare is more than just killing people. It's also about weakening people, incapacitating people, sometimes caloric restriction. Yes, the United States has done the math on how many calories you need to deprive of people before they become less capable of having kids, less capable of being effective soldiers, uh, and to demoralize them. The math has been done. And guess what? We talked earlier that there's so many opportunities to find ways to do biological and genetic research. Again, think of that. Think of the money that we think is protecting our hamburger meat. Again, being used for biological research. And farm animals are fantastic. There's no Hippocratic Oath. Veterinarians can inject whatever they want and kill whatever they want. I'm not saying they do, but they, there's that freedom there. And there's a massive supply of animals. You can, you can subject millions of whatever you want uh, uh, to death and medical experimentation. You can't do that easily with people. So there's a lot of flexibility. And, and hence, many people who have become very powerful in biowarfare are not doctors. They're scientists, geneticists, and or veterinarians. We've just seen a video going viral lately. The United States Defense Threat Reduction Agency of a high-ranking veterinarian um, involved in protecting America uh, from uh, you know bioterror attacks and other and other pathogens. Uh, if I may, a couple more things before we move on from Plum Island here. Really important. Um, one of the first main, one of the founding scientists of Plum Island, uh, one of the, their first leading bacteriologists, if you will, was a Dr. Eric Traub, T-R-A-U-B. Eric Traub was a German who came to the United States in the 1930s or so. He was a scientist, uh, pathologist, bacteriologist. He was, he, he came to the United States in the 1930s. Uh, because not only did he have the scientific capabilities uh, as, a, as a young scientist, but he was also bilingual, hence he was a very successful uh, translator. 
in addition to you know being a, a research scientist. And he was brought to the United States by, uh, by a grant from the Rockefeller Institute. He did his research in the Rockefeller. And then around uh, as World War II broke out, I guess he got an okay to go back to Germany <laughs> and become a Nazi scientist. So he was a, he was a switch hitter. Uh, and during World War II, he was, I think, the top-ranking bacteriologist uh, for the entire SS. Uh, was a found was the founder of the the World War II or the Nazi version of uh, uh, the Ensel Rhymes, which is really their version of Plum Island. Afterwards, I'm not sure if he was arrested before he came back, but he did ultimately come back to the United States before I think then going back to Germany. So, one of those paperclip type people, but with a spin on it that I think Annie Jacobson misses, which is. Uh, uh, the paperclip story is not just a one-way street. This is a Nazi or Russian and German scientists that were brought into the United States and Canada afterwards. It's possible that quite a few were here and then went back to Germany, then came out after the war, or possibly some might have even been Canadians who faked the German accent, pretended to be Hungarian, and then came back to Canada. There's a lot of different permutations that Annie, I don't think Annie Jacobson uh, found. Um, I think it's a more complex uh, issue. And also, uh, I just wanted to highlight how Eric Traub, um, at, at the very least, uh, inspired a lot of other people to go into, uh, into these arts, uh, into these uh, sciences. There's a whole family of, uh, of uh, doctors, uh, scientists that studied under him. And some, uh, believe it or not, to this day, or at least up until recently, have still been active. Um, one of them, matter of fact, uh, was one of the uh, one of the names on the uh, the SARS-CoV-1 patent out of Chiron Corporation in April of 2003. Uh, Dr. H.D. Klink or Hans Dieter Klink, K-L-E-N-K last name. Again, more information than anyone could ever possibly absorb. It just highlights that this is a long-term thing. It is a 120-year history, if not more over multiple countries, multiple departments, multiple wars. Uh, uh, I'm not sure it could be summarized in a 10,000 page book or much less a 400 page book, Um, which is why it's been very difficult to try to approach this as a, you know, as a, as a researcher analyst who's trying to do it justice and boil it down for people. All I can, I'm, I, Sometimes I try to make it a simpler story, as in it's the pursuit of the mastery of uh, the human genome. Uh, that's a simple thing that we can understand. But how that's been approached and what we thought was possible has changed and drifted dramatically over the last 120 years. The way it's described in books has changed over the, over that time period. Uh, but uh, anyways, uh, I think that's a good review. Any any questions, Recluse, on Plum Island? Uh have you been writing any, any questions down for us to go into more no, on that topic? No, I, I did have an interesting observation, though. I mean, I, I know Grissom is probably aware of this. I don't know if, Mark, you are. You probably are there, too. But uh, Long Island has uh, been the site of a lot of weird stuff over the years. Um, but especially during the 70s, there were a lot of... Uh, 
there have been a lot of speculation over the years that there were things tied into the whole thing with the process church of the final judgment, the purported cult around it. Of course, the uh, Hamptons turns up, I think, in the Roy Raiden uh, saga and the what whipping of Monica Heller or something like that at one of those uh, really ritzy mansions that you're talking about. This was also the whole area of the Thomas Corbally, uh, Roy Cohn's uh, longtime private detective was essentially the godfather of this bizarre S&M scene that was going on there. Um, but anyway, I, I bring this up because uh, this is, you know, now uh, somewhat known. Uh, the process, of course, uh, began to break up around the mid-1970s, uh, some different factions, but the uh, one that ultimately survived uh, became a foundation something or other and then eventually morphed into um the best friends uh, animal society it's a very large veterinarian group uh that is currently based out of utah uh which i'm sure mark you're aware houses the dugway uh facility that's the uh, largest uh chemical bio warfare research facility in the west coast uh or in the western uh, part of the united states um that is in a different part of the state i will point out in utah is a big place but um it is it's interesting that of all the places in all the world that's uh that's where they ended up there <laughs> Uh, yeah, I haven't done a, a lot of work on Dugway. Um, I know that they were uh, testing a lot of uh, uh, airdropped uh, ticks and fleas in that area. Um, some of that research has also been done actually in, the, in Ukraine and Kazakhstan and uh, the nation of Georgia. Just talks of a, a laboratory there. Um, uh, John, did you did you uh, did you do any work on Dugway? No, not at all. No, no. No matter, but uh, yeah, it's it's just interesting, you know, with all the other stuff that we've kind of been looking at here. But uh, anyway, interesting thing there to point out. Um, well, Brookhaven is also in uh, in Long Island, uh, and there's this weird uh, connection that there's, there's there's been a lot of German influences there. Um, well, yeah, they had that whole Nazi like youth camp thing, like I think in the 30s up to the early 40s, you know, where they were training all these kids and stuff in Long Island. I think uh, it was like these summer camps that they sent them to for these like kind of paramilitary training. Uh, nobody's ever really talked about what happened to the kids afterwards. Um, of course, Long Island's also big in all the Montauk mythos that were built up as part of some of these arts and what have you. It's, it's There's a lot of weird stuff tied into all that area. I, you could just there's island, yeah, There's islands off of Long Island that I don't even know the names of. You look at it on a map because it's not like a place that you drive by. And you notice at the end of all, it's like a huge island there, several hundred acres. And it's like one house in the middle. It's like, how did that happen? It, it, like this massive island that one person, like one family's owned for like 200 years. These are stories that just, they don't get out there. Most people don't know. You know, the Forbes family has their own island, uh, sort of between Long Island and uh, Rhode Island. There's a lot of weird, huge estates out there, people that we don't even know about. You know, the world's richest person probably lives in a place like that, uh, more so than in a mansion in Seattle. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you're right. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, some of those areas out there are just, they're very exclusive. I mean, I think that's kind of what Kubrick was getting at with the mansion and eyes wide shut. Uh, that would have definitely been in the Hamptons, in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, well, uh, Mark, do you want to get into uh, Joshua Letterberg now and the whole eugenics thing versus eugenics? Oh, yes, yes, please. Um, uh, Dr. Joshua Lederberg. Uh, I say Lederberg. Maybe it's Lederberg. Uh, you say Leder. Right. I say Leder. I, I can't pronounce anything <laughs> to save my life. So uh, he was born 1925 in uh, Montclair, uh, New Jersey. Uh, he passed away in 2008, uh, New York City. Uh, he uh, was recruited and served in World War II, but in the capacity of a uh, of a teacher, and uh, he won a Nobel Prize very early for work that he did at the University of Wisconsin uh, in the field of bacteriology and genetics. Uh, what his, the, the research that he did, his groundbreaking work that won him the Nobel, um, and there's another name on, the, on, the, on that prize, I forget which one it was, I should know, uh, was the study of how some types of bacteria uh, have sex. Now, bacteria are single-cell organisms. Uh, we understand how multicellular organisms reproduce, generally speaking. But how do bacteria do it? If bacteria always just divide, cut in half, how can they ever do a, an exchange of genetic information, uh, which is uh, sort of like a, you know constantly making microscopic adjustments one generation or one iteration to the next? And what he observed was that there are some types of viruses that are specific to bacteria. And uh, these are called phages or bacteriophages. And some types of bacteria do just split. Uh, but, and some actually will uh, actually form like connections. They'll actually like uh, have a membranes which will connect and exchange some genetic information. But Form biofilm colonies. They'll yep. also... Um engulf other bacteria and still yep. some of their genetics incorporate them into as well. But what some will do is they will use these viruses to actually exchange genetic information. Um, so the virus will basically provide the bacteria, provides a way to uh, provide a package of data from one bacteria to another bacteria, hence sort of being part of the it's not really male, female, but at the very least, um, you know, exchange of genetic information and allowing for, uh, you know, diversity without always having to divide and divide and divide, et cetera. Well, think about that. Uh, that means that there is a role that uh, these bacteriophages have with some types of bacteria, which is more than just a pathogen. I'm not a virologist. I said this before. But I've, uh, I am a, a U.S. patent owning, uh, uh, you know, so, uh, software engineer. I've worked with some of the largest data storage companies in the world. I can understand patterns. And what I see when I look at a virus is a beautiful piece of information surrounded by a packet with checksums, uh, with identifications, with a messenger ID, with a sender ID, et cetera. And when I look at the, what, what Lederberg had discovered, was that some types of viruses have a um, symbiotic relationship with bacteria more than just the virus being something that just finds the virus, it finds the bacteria and kills it. Instead, 
the viruses are actually used as part of the uh, of the reproduction and even complex message passing between uh, within and between generations of bacteria. That really opens the door and is a whole new way of looking at viruses instead of just pathogens that kill to, huh, they seem to be involved in genetic manipulation of cells. Now studying, now bacteriophages are, if you look at them under my, they look like space alien lunar pods, you know, like how could something like that even exist on that scale? They're super tiny bacteria specific viruses, but other virons uh, and multicellular organisms may also have some similar uh, traits such as this, meaning viruses, instead of just being things that, you know, reproduce and are out to kill humans as some of the, uh, the Peter Dajaks and other people would suggest, uh, uh, Peter Hotez, right, um, might have a much more uh, intricate role with, uh, with genetics. In fact, the study of viruses might actually be the study of something which could be the gateway to genetic augmentation uh, or, or, or monitoring and, and so on. And sure enough, what came out of the research that, uh, that Lederberg did tied into uh, cancer research, tied into uh, uh, genetic manipulation, which was being done or studied within the Atomic Energy Program, and uh, Lederberg's work led him to having a role with NASA, uh, studying uh, the uh, effect of, um, of uh, you know, low, uh, you know, what do you want to call it, uh, low Earth or mid-orbit or, mid uh, uh, exposure of certain life forms to, to, their, uh, to their genetic state. But it also earned him a very trusted position alongside Henry Kissinger for decades. Uh, Lederberg and Kissinger more or less worked side by side from the Kennedy administration all the way to uh, Bush Jr. Um, and Lederberg really was Kissinger's expert on, on genetics, on what's possible, on what direction this stuff is going in, on the relative threat to this research, to the traditional military, the impacts on civilizations, uh, uh, macro and micro. Uh, it's a fascinating relationship. Most people don't even know it exists, this relationship of Lederberg and Kissinger. Uh, it's underexplored. Uh, I don't think Kissinger made a single call as to what to do or not to do with respect to biologic research, genetics, bioweapons, biodefense, if you will, etc., without uh, close consultation with Lederberg. I don't know if they were on the same page with everything. I have absolutely no idea, um, but I'm open-minded to, uh, uh, to what uh, Lederberg uh, brought to the table and what his positions on things might be. Um, in fact, uh, Lederberg might have had more of a role than, than, than Kissinger did, but Kissinger gets all the notoriety for, you know, when uh, Nixon made a decision to shut down biodefense research Kissinger and Kissinger only decided to restart it under the uh, within the National Cancer Institute. Eh, I'm not so sure it was just Kissinger. I think uh, Lederberg would have uh, played a, a very close consultative role with that. Now, one more uh, Lederberg story that I have to mention here, uh, and this 
really nails home. It really hammers home how important it is to consider at all times the role uh, of the of, of biodefense and genetic research worldwide. There was a lot of debate within the United States in the Reagan administration, 1980s, about what is the future of the military? What direction are we going in? If you've seen the movie War Games, I trust most people here have. I've seen it quite a few times. They were That movie made in 1982, 1983 sort of expresses what the concern was, the computers being able to do the work, uh, that uh, military conflicts were moving from, uh, you know, being in uh, being out there with the tanks and the helicopters and the guns and so on to something different. Um, and who really should control it? Should it be the old school military generals? Where should we put our money? There was a, uh, a security group called the uh, Future Security Working Group. It started, I think, in the possibly even the, before Reagan became president, but it continued throughout his administration. Uh, it was marshaled by none less than Andrew Marshall, uh, who was appointed the head. He was the head for almost 50 years of a Pentagon unit called the Office of Net Assessment, which was created, oddly enough, by Nixon. And it appears as though what Andrew Marshall did, which is probably the most brilliant name ever someone could have had, was to marshal uh, all of these differences in opinion of what is the future of military conflict going to be. Now, uh, top names in that group, of course, included uh, the uh, uh, you know, Brzezinski, Kissinger, uh, Wolstetter, uh, all of all of your other favorite who's who in neoconservatism, uh, but also Dr. Joshua Lederberg. And I think Lederberg said, look, you can bomb all the people you want, but ultimately uh, uh, the most powerful weapon is going to be whoever can figure out how to hack and master the human genome uh, first. Uh, so those struggles continued throughout the 1980s and 1990s, and Lederberg was always side by side with Kissinger. Uh, as these uh, as these things were explored. Now, <laughs> we're going to talk about 9-11 in a little while, but uh, when the anthrax, I think it was when the anthrax letters hit, um, uh, and they were doing, a, and this was in, no, just a little bit afterwards, no, I think it was October, November of 2001, uh, when the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, set up a, uh, a, a small, uh, working group to determine, quote unquote, what went wrong with 9-11. Uh, he didn't choose anyone else in the military. He chose bacteriologist Dr. Joshua Lederberg to run that investigation, uh, which should recolor everyone's understanding of what 9-11 was really about or what might have it might have been planned to be about. That's the level we're talking at here. This this biodefense consideration, this is not just a new thing. It didn't just start with SARS and, and build up with coronavirus. It's been ongoing for a long time. And there's a lot of pictures. Reagan spending a lot of time, again, with, with Lederberg at, at multiple events. And I think Lederberg got his, uh, I think he won a Medal of Freedom. He was awarded by, uh, by Bush Sr., uh, before, uh, I think it was Bush Sr., before uh, Clinton even became president. So that would have been, what, 91, 92? Lederberg was the president of the Rockefeller Institute at the time. That's a huge name to study. Uh, he's one of the, the, 
in, in the, at least in the last uh, 50, 60 years. Uh, and sadly, most people don't know who he is, um, even in, uh, in, the, in the research circles. Uh, shout out to Whitney Webb. Um, uh, she has uh, mentioned Lederberg several times in her articles. Um, I think there's a lot more there to explore, but uh, she's one of the very few people who at the very least has mentioned his name of as of historical significance. And uh, I love giving credit whenever I, I possibly can. So, so good for her and for the teams that she works with uh, on that uh, uh, with respect to Lederberg. Uh, John. I got nothing to add on that. Good job, Mark. All right, John, uh, can you discuss Operation Seafoam and uh, Operation Infection for us? Yes, I can. Uh, it's actually Operation Sea Spray, not Seafoam. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, that, that was uh, my mistake when I was talking to you about it. Um, so uh, there are numerous biodefense attack exercises that were run throughout the United uh, States that were that we are aware of uh, between the 1940s and the 1960s. The supposed goal of these exercises were to deter the use of biological weapons against the United States and its allies and to retaliate if deterrence failed. Um, government also, the United States government, uh, government also mentioned as far as the tests, uh, fundamental to the development of the deterrence strategy was the need for a thorough study and analysis of our vulnerability to over and covert uh, biological attacks. Uh, so interestingly enough, where we get a lot of our information about uh, There's something that needs to be known here uh, from the um, about the uh, these uh, bio defense attack exercises run by the United States uh, was it came from um, the American Citizens for Honesty in Government. Uh, that was a group that was founded by the Church of Scientology. Uh, and they uh, did no, numerous uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, that um, uh, they that they had discovered, uh, you know, heavily redacted um, information um, pertaining to these exercises uh, in the late 1970s, and, and started sharing them with uh, journalists and new agencies around the world, um, as well as uh, recluses, you well know. Uh, many uh, documents that we have uh, detailing the MK Ultra, uh, MK Often, MK Naomi, uh, the numerous MK projects uh, also come from Freedom, Freedom of Information Act requests from the Church of Scientology. Uh, now, I don't really know what to make of this. The CIA also kind of mentions this as far as their discussion of Operation Infection, and I'll get to that later. Um, I don't know if the United States government was working with the Church of Scientology in a way of kind of like a, a controlled disclosure and that they knew that this information was coming out. So therefore, well, we'll release it to the Church of Scientology, we'll release it heavily redacted. And then if anybody questions about it, oh, we could say, well, it's the Church of Scientology, you know, they're a crazy cult. Uh, so the information uh, is tenuous at best uh, that came out from them. Because uh, supposedly there's this giant war between the Church of Scientology and the government of the United States of America, as well as uh, the Kennedy brothers, uh, JFK and RFK. And uh, Josh Reeves had uh, 
brought up the uh, potential of his excellent movie, The Spellcasters, on the uh, volume one. Everybody should go out and buy it and uh, watch it. It's an expose on the Church of Scientology throughout Hollywood uh, and later uh, that it may have been the supposed war on Scientology from John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Robert uh, Fitzgerald Kennedy uh, that led to possibly both of their assassinations. So there is a supposed war against the Church of Scientology and the United States government. Of course, I think you have Operation Snow White. Was that what it was called? If I remember correctly, uh, Stephen, when the Church of Scientology tried to uh, uh, put people uh, in uh, various positions of the United States government that were uh, Scientologists. Am I remembering that correctly? Stephen, we're you there. Oh, we might have lost her clues there for a minute. But anyway, I'll continue. Uh, uh, so, um, but yes, so uh, let's see here. The United States Navy uh, from a mine sweeper ship began spraying aerosol containing the gram negative uh, pseudo uh, monodota, which we used to call proteobacteria, uh, serratia uh, marcescens, uh, which is kind of like that pink slime you ever seen at the bottom of the ring of like uh, drains like your bathtub drain or sink drain, uh, that pink biofilm, red biofilm is, is, is serratia marcescens. Uh, and they also sprayed the gram-positive bacilliota bacteria, bacillus globigii, uh, on September 26, 1951, uh, for six days, uh, two miles uh, off the coast of uh, Northern California. Um, Operation Sea Spray was supposedly run to determine the susceptibility of a big city like San Francisco uh, by an enemy biowarfare attack. In older tests uh, during the 1950s, our researchers dispersed serratia marcens on Panama City, Florida, and Key West, Florida, with no known illnesses resulting, so they say. Um, now, of course, the, the, the citizens of these uh, cities uh, were not alerted that these, uh, these uh, quote-unquote, biodefense uh, attack exercises were being performed on them. Um, now, they also released fluorescent compounds over Minnesota and other Midwestern states, or when they did these serratia marcescens um, uh, exercises. Um, and so one of the main fluorescent compounds that they, that they used to kind of keep measure of the release of these bacterial colonies and how far they would go were party particles of zinc cadmium sulfide. Now, zinc cadmium sulfide is now a known cancer-causing agent. Uh, Short-term exposure of zinc cadmium sulfide. Cadmium sulfide can cause inflammation in the lungs and coughing. Chronic long-term exposure can cause kidney impairment or failure of chemical uh, pneumonitis, uh, pulmonary edema, which is, of course, uh, fluid uh, swelling within, within the lungs. Uh, and uh, cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis. Um, and uh, those particles were detected more than a thousand miles away in New York State. Uh, the Army told uh, later Senate hearings that were held uh, about these uh, biodefense attack exercises that no known illnesses were supposedly ever attributed to uh, them as a result. Uh, operation Large Area Coverage was the United States Army Chemical Corps operation 1957 1958 which experienced microscopic zinc cadmium sulfate particles over much of the United States. Purpose was to determine desperation and geographic range of biological chemical agents. Uh, zinc um, cadmium sulfate was used as it could be easily detected because it's fluorescent. 
Um, and uh, author Leonard Cold said the United States Army testing of zinc cadmium sulfate on the American populace without their knowledge was literally using the country as an experimental laboratory. Uh, of course, you know, zinc in and of itself, when you breathe it in heavily, as happens to some welders, can cause a condition called um, metal fume fever, uh, which causes the chills and trouble breathing and the lung inflammation and the coughing. Uh, cadmium itself is usually found in paint. Uh, it's quite toxic. It's also found in different quantities of dark chocolate. So you can end up getting cadmium uh, toxicity or poisoning over a long period of time. If you uh, uh, paint a lot, it's how we get the color cadmium yellow uh, that's used in painting. Uh, as well as eating dark chocolate. I've coached many people with cadmium toxicity. It is a real thing. Uh, it's detoxified by vitamin C or ascorbic acid. So some people who form kidney stones or bladder stones, ingestion of vitamin C, it's not really oxalate formation. It's possible cadmium toxicity being removed from the body, uh, forming uh, uh, oxalate cadmium crystals in, in, in the kidney, uh, the urinary system, urinary tract. That's another discussion. Um, but, um, uh, another bacteria, Bacillus globegi, never shown to be harmful to people. It was released in San Francisco at the same time the Serratia marcens was. Um, and, uh, while still others were being tested on res unwitting res residents in New York, Washington, DC, and then along the Pennsylvania Turnpike, um, they were state that sprayed Bacillus globegi. Uh, based on the results from monitoring equipment at 43 locations around the country, the Army determined that San Francisco had received enough of a dose for nearly all the city's 800,000 residents to inhale at least 5,000 uh, zinc cadmium sulfate uh, bacterial aer aer aerosolized particles. Um, two weeks after spraying, and there's a conflict about this, and I'll get to this in a minute. On October 11, 1950, Mr. Edward Nevin, a 75-year-old retired pipe fitter, checked into Stanford Hospital in San Francisco with fever, chills, and general malaise. Interestingly enough, uh, fume metal fever has those same symptoms I just mentioned earlier that you get from zinc inhalation. Ten other men and women checked into the same hospital, which has been relocated to Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, with similar complaints. Doctors noticed that all 11 had the same uh, malady, uh, a pneumonia caused by exposure to bacteria believed to be serratia marcins. Uh, Mr. Nevin uh, sadly died three weeks later. The others recovered. Doctors were so surprised by the outbreak that they reported in the medical journal, oblivious at the time to the uh, biowarfare, uh, biodefense testing that was going on. Uh, cases of pneumonia in San Francisco also increased after Seratio Marcins was released on October 11, 1950. Uh, now there's conflicts between the report of whether or not Nevin was already in the hospital, whether those 10 other people were already in the hospital, I have tried to locate the medical journal report by the doctors, but I've been unable to do so. Uh, but it's my opinion that that was just later cover up that these people were not uh, in the hospital. They say that, you know, the, for example, the infections that the people got, the, the, the new, you know, the government claims, well, they got bladder infections. Uh, and they got those in the hospital. Well, the so-called so-called case study says it wasn't bladder infections uh, that these people were uh, uh, suffering from. It was pneumonia, and uh, that would be an infection of uh, the uh, lungs. 
Uh, so uh, there you go. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle's David Perlman, who reported the revelation in 1976, found no evidence that the army had alerted health authorities before it blanketed the region with bacteria. As the news surfaced, doctors started wondering why the army experiment that seeded the Bay Area with Serratia marcensis. Two decades later, earlier, might be responsible for heart valve infections that began cropping up as well as serious infections seen among intravenous users. In 1960s, 1970s, said Dr. Lee Riley, professor of infectious disease at UNC Berkeley, or UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, after the Army disclosed the test nearly three decades later, Mr. Nevin's surviving family members filed a lawsuit against the United States government, uh, alleging negligence. My grandfather wouldn't have had died except for that. It left my grandmother to go broke trying to pay his medical bills, said Mr. Nevin's grandson, Edward J. Nevin III, a San Francisco attorney, filed the U.S. Uh, case in the U.S. District Court. Army officials know the pneumonia outbreak in 1977 sent a testimony, but said any link to the experiments was totally, totally coincidental. No other hospitals reported similar outbreaks, the Army pointed out, and all 11 victims had urinary tract infections follow medical procedures, suggesting the source of their infections lay inside the hospital, which is common of a non-casomal or community-acquired infection. However, again, I would note that it was reported uh, in, the, in uh, both the news reports and, uh, and of the uh, uh, medical report uh, that I don't know if they were suffering from urinary tract infections, but they, they were suffering from pneumonia which is a completely uh, different, again, affection of a different part of the body. There's a big difference between an affection in your urinary tract, your bladder, uh, your urethra, uh, then uh, your lungs. Uh, so it's interesting that the Army somehow managed to botch that. They also mentioned no other hospitals report similar outbreaks. Well, we, we, we don't know that. That's taking liberties. No one knew that the stuff was being sprayed, so maybe the infections exist. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they just weren't reported. Maybe there just was a strong cluster in the general area of this hospital. So the doctors were like, huh, why are these people have pneumonia? Why are, they, why are these people having heart issues, supposedly? Uh, you know, so um, the Evan family appealed the suit all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to overturn lower court judgments upon the government's immunity from such lawsuits. So the Nevin family end up getting no justice and end up getting no payday for the United States government, which still maintains to this day that the uh, increase of uh, pneumonia infections in the San Francisco area, among other uh, infections, possibly due to uh, serratia marcescens or even bacillus uh, globecki, even though bacillus um, is not known, uh, globecki, she doesn't know, is known not to cause infections as much as serratia marcescens is, um, they, you know, they claim that that exercise had nothing to do with anybody falling ill or dying. Uh, so there you go. The government completely has uh, plausible deniability. It's just coincidence. And uh, yeah, so uh, there you go. Uh, so that would be Operation Sea Spray. Do you guys got any questions about that or anything before I talk about Operation Infection? Well, uh, you, you highlight an important point there, and that is, what is the what's what was caused by infection? What was caused by injury? And sometimes what the the legacy of some of these events is uh, that being potentially a new pathogen created that was spread airborne um, might be false. I'm not saying that no one was injured or killed, uh, but the nature of the uh, of the fatalities might it might not be properly captured by the history books, or even by the conspiracy, if you will, uh, uh, circles, yet they're allowed to fester uh, and, and live on as misrepresented. Uh, 
it's important to not lose track of uh, if if the state of the technology is not as far advanced as um, as as we are led to believe. That doesn't mean that it's going to be abandoned. the The point of some of these experiments is not the goal may not have actually been, or the realized goal may not have actually been to create a pathogen that could that could kill or to weaken. It might have been to create uh, a, that, that might have been to encourage people to pursue a reaction, to have a response that could be uh, to fear it or possibly even to feel compelled to take a medicine because of, out of their fear, or maybe to influence uh, the way a society thinks about something, the way they vote, uh, their political affiliation, um, where they want their tax dollars spent, who the heck knows, what they should fear, what, what government organizations should get more money or less money. Uh, so some of the, the legacy of some of these things, I wonder, you know, uh, if, if it's all, even just because it's not well known doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's true. Uh, it could be that uh, um, this person could have been poisoned instead of actually have been impacted by a biological agent. But whatever, right? It was enough to prove that maybe they had the technology to kill people with a biological, airborne biological agent, which would justify more money being spent on uh, biosurveillance and medical countermeasures. Should anyone ever hypothetically in the future have an airborne uh, pathogen. Uh, did I uh, capture that properly, John? Yes. Uh, and so I guess one last thing is you could say that there is a possibility that the people who got ill at San Francisco were not ill from the bacteria, did not develop pneumonia for the bacteria itself, it's possible that they could have been poisoned by the zinc cadmium sulfate particles, uh, which would have triggered pneumonia and uh, other issues and uh, could, you know, possibly uh, could have, uh, you know, caused deaths uh, as well. I mean, metal fume yeah. fever usually doesn't kill someone. Uh, but however, when you're elderly and you have other comorbidities, it's yep. quite possible that that could be the case. So did they die from the pathogens? Maybe, maybe not. Did they die from the zinc cadmium sulfate? Maybe, maybe not. Was it both of them? Was it both the pathogens or was it the zinc cadmium sulfate lower their immunity? Uh, and then they breathe in the serratiomarsins after there's an inflammation in the lungs and then it takes root there and then they get, you know, did they suffer from both bacterial and chemical, uh, uh pneumonia? Uh, quite possible. Uh, we'll never know the complete truth because it's been memory hole by the United States government and anybody who tries to look into it otherwise is gaslit that it's not a thing. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it is what it is, you know, but I mean, again, this is where we're at. So, uh, Recluse, you got anything, brother? No, no, no. It's uh, certainly a hall of mirrors, though, that is for sure. All right. Well, um, there have been a lot of rumblings over the years about the U.S.'s involvement in the development of HIV and AIDS. The general consensus now, per the self-described disinformation specialist Thomas Ridd, is that it was all Soviet propaganda. Mark, where do you stand on that, brother? 
Well, the Soviet position is that it's a bioweapon uh, that was created and intentionally released by the United States government. Uh, uh, there's evidence that points, uh, there, there's evidence uh, all over the place, and there's nothing that has proved what Russia said to be true. And it is very possible that um, this, uh, this, uh, the uh, HIV virus uh, might not have ever been genetically modified at all. Um, it, you know, it could have just been something which was found, discovered accidentally um, in, a, in a primate that was being used for vaccine manufacture years ago. So in a certain shade, right? You could say that the Soviet Union has a point, but then we have to consider how. Now, Mark, I have to interrupt. The, the, you here, okay? Are they in sync, though? How in sync is is uh, is the Soviet point, uh, or are the people doing the biological uh, research? I have to interrupt you. I have yes. to interrupt you. Okay, you just literally, literally verbatim gave Soviet USSR active measure KGB propaganda, okay, which was known as Operation Infection. All right. So I'm not saying there ain't... That's how complicated this thing gets. All right, because... Uh, uh, I, 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 I said that the U.S. may have a point that uh, that it is propaganda. Okay, yes, true. That but it might you, be. It might just be natural. But what you mentioned beforehand, though was the USSR party line that it came out of Fort Detrick, all right? So that it was... Yeah, so, so, okay, so that's where Operation Infection comes in. It's something I, I guess I forgot to mention. Was oh, that, no, please, uh, continue on. So just remind people of what it is, and then, uh, and then please review. Because it plays on this. So the USSR was running uh, um, active measure campaigns, at least since the 1920 active measure campaigns are kind of like political warfare programs, disinformation, propaganda, sabotage, stabilization, subversion, espionage, blah, 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 against uh, numerous uh, countries throughout the uh, world. Uh, so Operation Infection, also known as Operation Denver, was a supposed USSR KGB active measure uh, program uh, that the United States had gained a functioned uh, the, retro, uh, the retrovirus known as the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, as part of a biological weapons research project at Fort Detrick, Maryland during the 1980s. Now, this information originally supposedly came from a, a anonymous letter uh, from an Indian newspaper called The Patriot that was titled AIDS May Invade India, Mystery Caused by U.S. Experience, Experiments on July 17, 1983. Um, and so in that paper, uh, and most of the information we have, a lot of the information from that paper uh, comes from, and is that this, this, this um, uh, used to be, um, there was a paper uh, written by uh, U.S. Army Center of Military History, Thomas Bogart, who was a, a Georgetown University um, uh, senior historian, okay? So he writes about this operation, Infection and Death. This was later published on the CIA's website. Um, and so he called, you know, he says that the Patriot, uh, which is still published and still online today, you can go, you can go um, visit it, uh, that the Patriot was um, a Soviet 
uh, rag. And this would later be, this information would later come from a uh, defector, uh, so-called uh, um, KGB defector named Ilya, uh, I'm going to butcher, maybe like we're close, uh, Dzerk Velov, who was a Georgian-born author and journalist. He was a captain in the KGB. He later defected from the USSR in 1980 to NATO and later moved to England, where he lives now. He claimed that the Patriot newspaper paper was a USSR KGB front that was set up in 1962 for the sheer purpose of publishing disinformation. However, one thing that's interestingly noted that is left out by people uh, that have researched this, like Bogart, was that in 1976, right before Ilya defected, he was posted in Geneva, Switzerland as an information officer for the World Health Organization. Hmm. <laughs> Good one. So that, that's interesting there. Okay. Now, some people will say, well, you're, John, you're casting doubt on the CIA's, uh, infor- you know, the CIA and, and um, Smithsonian uh, Woodrow Center uh, information that's, 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 that, that shows that, uh, that, that uh, the United States had nothing to do with gain-of-function research in, in, in HIV, and it was all Soviet propaganda, all of it. Um, Okay, fine, whatever. I'm casting doubt on that because you got to be truthful here. You can't just leave that. You can't just leave this information as a side and not talk about it. Okay, it's ridiculous. All right. So, you know, Bogart uh, claimed the so-called anonymous author of the letter claimed to be a well-known American scientist and anthropologist living in New York. Now, this is a letter that was in the Patriot, okay? And claimed that AIDS is believed to be the result of the Pentagon's experiments to develop new and dangerous biological weapons. Later, it continues to say that the United States was about to transfer these experiment sites to Pakistan, where they would pose a grave threat to neighboring India. Later cites several publicly available sources. The article recounts a series of supposed well-established facts about AIDS, that, that there was a great concern about contaminated blood donations, that AIDS was probably caused by a virus, that AIDS registered its first major, major outbreak within the United States. The author then listed elements of the United States Biological Warfare Program known to the public, government records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act by, again, the Church of Scientology, who documented biological experiments in the 1950s. CIA-sponsored testing of drugs on humans during the same time period and the development of biological weapons in the late 1960s of Fort Detroit. Even though President Richard Nixon had, had banned U.S. Offensive Bacteriological Weapons Research by Executive Order 1969. Letter in the Patriots stated the Pentagon had never abandoned these weapons and claimed that Fort Dietrich had discovered AIDS by analyzing samples of a highly pathogenic viruses collected by American scientists in Africa and Latin America. Letter concluded by quoting statistical publication on the spread and lethality of HIV as a particular threat to developing nations. Okay. So, yeah, supposedly that was KGB, USSR disinformation. <laughs> all right. Uh, and so, you know, later um, we get information that the KGB, two years later, uh, wanted to make use of his earlier supposed disinformation campaign to launch an international campaign to discredit the United States. Uh, they wrote in a, in a telegram um, uh, to their allied secret service in Bulgaria, the Bulgarian Committee for State Security on September 7, 1985, we are conducting a series of active measures in connection with the appearance in recent years in the United States and a new dangerous uh, disease, AIDS. And as a secret large-scale spread to other countries, including those in Western Europe, the goal of these measures is to create a federal opinion for us abroad that this disease is a result of secret experiments with a new type of biological weapon by the secret services of the United States and the Pentagon that spun out of control. Facts have already been cited in the press of developing countries, in particular India, that, that testify. The, so they mention that the press in India has reported on this. They don't exactly mention the Patriot, 
but they mentioned that the press has, so that's enough for people like the CNA, CIA, enough for Bogart, enough for the Woodrow Center, uh, you know, the Woodrow Wilson Center, uh, to say, well, they were directly talking about and set all this up, and this was all an active measures campaign, okay? And I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm just saying to sit here and act like the United States has never done anything with biowarfare uh, capability research or anything like that. Or, you know, some people would say that, again, and, and they, they even recently did the same thing with COVID when they did a documentary called Operation Reinfection that says that any COVID, you know, discussion of it coming from a lab, whether it's for Dietrich or Wuhan or wherever, that that was, again, Soviet disinformation campaign and a redone of active measures of Russia. It is uh, of, uh, of Gru, it's ridiculous. It, yes. To, to sit here, it, we can't sit here and have a discussion of whether or not it's true or not. Because the moment you have a freaking discussion, okay, <clears throat> you're a Russian agent. It's the same propaganda that was used then as the same propaganda that was used now. So, yeah, is it a possibility that this is, that this was USSR propaganda, uh, you know, as Mark alluded to? And that, you know, that that it, it wasn't, you know, gain of function in a lab at Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, you know, that HIV. Of course, that's, that could be true. Just like you could say that it's also true that we don't really know if COVID specifically came out of Wuhan or if it came out of Fort Detrick. OK, and there could be some Soviet active, me- you know, Russia active measure campaign currently going on with that, too. That is possible, yes. But to sit here to say that you that also the other part can't be possible that these diseases did come from United States biowarfare, quote unquote, biodefense um, uh, research is ludicrous. So, so you have to it, it, you we have to sit here and try to take an honest, open look at this and be reflective. And I mean, there's more to Operation Infection. You know, I'm not. It would take me another thirty minutes to an hour to discuss oh. what all happened with it and everything. At least, uh, I mean, later you had a. Uh, uh, there was an article published by Zapdalov, Zapdalov, in a Soviet newspaper, uh, the Gazada, uh, that was the claim as a known outlet for KGB misinformation. Uh, on AIDS. And so he, and he, Zaplov even stated that most of his research uh, was acquired for the Patriot article. So he kind of rewrites this. But again, the American, even, even um, the Woodrow Center mentions this, even, even the CIA mentions this, but there were numerous, numerous journalists and numerous outlets like the Associated Press, even Dan Rather on, uh, on the nightly news uh, ran a uh, CBS Even News ran a, a story on Fort Detrick uh, being the cause of, of, of HIV and, and uh, gain of function testing. And they're like, shame at all those people. They all, oh. every single one of them, fell for Soviet propaganda. You know? Uh, no, no they ridiculous. said, but look where they're pointing the finger. They're yeah. pointing the finger at Fort Detrick. Okay. Uh, Take that. Remember what I, I mentioned earlier. Can't just look at it as the Ruskies versus the Americans. There's a lot more interdepartment, interagency, intergovernment fighting going on here. Uh, uh, you know, is uh, was the uh, the interest that brought forward that uh, this was created 
released by by something or by some group out of Fort Detrick. Is it's being described as Russian intelligence or Russian propaganda? Is that really just another department within the U.S. that said that wants it pointed at Fort Detrick? Remember, think of how many billions of dollars and how much political influence is going to go to whoever controls this research. Is it going to go to the National Institutes of Health or the, uh, which is really Health and Human Services? Is it going to go to the Pentagon? Who's it going to go to? USDA. Who's going to control all that? You know, uh, so you point it at the Pentagon and then maybe another department, uh, you know, is actually trying to vie over it. Or it could be a non-government organization. It's more than just the Ruskies versus the Americans or the Chinese or this and that. That's that's old school way of breaking this up. I don't think it works at that level at all. Now, I what motivates what, what I usually use uh, again. This is far from a hundred percent accurate. Far from a hundred percent accurate is I'll look at uh, you know the media, and I just say, so who is portrayed in the most negative light? Who is never given the benefit of the doubt? Doesn't mean that they're a hero, but I'm I assume that there's probably some reason why uh by so much shade is thrown on some people. And I'm gonna bring up a name here that some people are gonna be like, Mark, how the hell can you actually suggest that that person is anything but the spawn of Satan? And oh well, I don't know. If, and that person is Robert Gallo. Gallo. Dr. Robert Gallo, um, who does, uh, uh, he never actually was with you, Samrit, but he does seem to have a, a pretty strong Pentagon alignment, has been seen as one of the most senior people within the United States Special Virus Cancer Program of the 1970s. And he is viewed as the American to, or possibly even the first person in the world to isolate the HIV, HIV-2 virus uh, that causes uh, AIDS uh, throughout uh, TV shows and movies of the 1980s, really 1990s, Gallo was always portrayed as the most evil person out there. And I don't have evidence to suggest that he wasn't, but it seems to be that he's the one person you could always blame. You can point the figure at Gallo as the, as the person responsible for this. Um, I don't think he I'm not sure he actually is the first person to isolate. I don't want to mention about Gallo real quick was that one of the guys that was supposedly involved in Operation Infection, which was uh, um, a uh, Lithuanian uh, Jewish um, uh, uh, biological researcher. Uh, He was a professor, uh, Jacob Siegel, um, and he was the one that they claimed that the Russians had came to uh, for Operation Infection to get him to push the narrative that it came from Fort Detroit, mm-hmm. he himself mentioned uh, that Professor Robert Gallo crossed the Vizna sheet virus with the human T lymphotropic virus in 1978 in the P4 laboratory of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, or USAMRIT, in Fort Detroit. So he was the one that came out with the claim that it was all Gallo, and that's how we end up at Fort Detroit, and that's how we all end up getting HIV. So I just want to make that known uh, that, that there you go. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there is a high correlation of the uh, if you look at the times and if you look at the populations and the locations of where the first uh, people who were diagnosed as having this new uh, virus, this HIV virus that was that was causing AIDS. Uh, If you look at the timeline, if you look at the populations, it seems to be that 
So that group at that time was the same population that was receiving an experimental hepatitis B vaccine, which was a recombinant DNA vaccine manufactured by Merck, um, uh, which was uh, tested out uh, with homeless and uh, heterosexual population in um, uh, Midtown, I would say East, East Midtown Manhattan, not too far from the Memorial Sloan Kettering and Rockefeller Institutes, as well as San Francisco. And that's kind of where these cases started to pop up that they initially said was, you know, gay people using poppers or whatever it was at that time. And some might have been that, but there is a, a this really odd correlation with and, and Merck. Now, Merck has done has a long history of being of, um, of biodefense research in having lent a helping hand to the United States by chemical and biological weapons program. Uh, but uh, if they did have some role in this, uh, that means that there's another opportunity now for those who are in the National Institutes of Health to make a play, to take the, to make a play for this. So you see the NIH create, and what do they do? What is the matter of fact, as this ep thing is breaking out in New York City, okay, somebody somewhere got the idea and this really, really wasn't a, like 1982 to create a new department, call it the NIAID and, and uh, put uh, this, uh, was it probably a 40 something year old, maybe he was in, even in his thirties, a Dr. Anthony Fauci in charge of the NIAID with a heavy focus on, uh, on HIV research and AIDS. Oddly enough, and this is something that's been wiped from the history books, is Dr. Anthony Fauci's father, Dr. Stephen Fauci, was a lead pharmacist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Research Hospital <laughs> for many years, right around the same time that this thing is breaking out. So you can see that maybe a new agency is to is start up within the National Institutes of Health to make a play for this. And of course, you say, oh, well, we didn't have anything to do with it. It must have been those those kooks over in the Pentagon. They're the people who are doing all the work. Just give us the money for the research. Uh, and, uh, and you know, we'll even uh, maybe get some of our contacts over in Russia to, to print something to say that uh, the Americans made it, but Fort Detrick made it. I, I'm not saying that Fort Detrick made it or didn't make it or whatever. I'm simply trying to convey to the audience all of the possibilities here and to open up beyond just Ruskies versus Patriots or this, these guys are the disinfo left versus right. There's a lot of interagency fights and it's more than just two. There's now there's multiple agencies. Now you have the NIH, you have NGOs, uh, department of Homeland security and the Pentagon fighting over each other. And all of these agencies have agencies within them that are responsible for being interagencies communicating with other agencies and other countries. It's it's a it's a, everyone's like this pointing all over the place. It, very hard story to tell. Um, it does not fit well into a Hollywood movie. I'll tell you that much. You know, you can't you can't you can't boil this down into a two hour and 15 minute movie format. No way. No siree. No how. So I look at Gallo, um, who clearly had a huge role uh, in the research um, and a lot of the papers that came out at the time. Uh, he stood up with the uh, Margaret Heckler, I think, what, uh, who was the HHS director, Health and Human Services director under President Reagan. He claimed to be the person that isolated it. It 
probably was um, uh, Luc Montagnier over in France. But then there's, uh, there's this whole crazy story of how Gallo uh, stole the samples, might have actually went to France and snuck out some HIV, isolated HIV samples. Who knows if that's true or not, but there actually is that story out there. And this is where it gets really freaky right up to the present. Okay, we, we, there's, there's a lot more to talk about here, but I have to mention this while we're talking about Robert Gallo, while we're talking about one of the top names out there on, uh, on HIV research. I'm not saying he invented it or anything like that, but definitely one of the top names, Dr. Robert Gallo is, there's two people uh, of the top two people he worked with, okay, let's say of the top four people he did work with throughout the 1970s, special virus cancer program in early 1980s. One of them was a Dr. Francis Ruschetti, uh, who went to University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, who is the lifelong mentor of Judy Mikovits. Um, and the other one was a Dr. Uh, uh, Murray Gardner, who worked at University of California, Davis. Murray Gardner is a virologist and primatologist who is the person responsible for showing that HIV could be uh, potentially uh, transmitted or reverse zoonosis back to chimpanzees or maybe SIV to, from chimps to people, hence showing that HIV was definitely from nature and something to do with bushmeat. And that Murray Gardner at University of California, Davis was the postdoc thesis advisor for Robert Malone. So within, again, one extra, extra hop, you have two of the top people in the patriot movement right now, quote unquote, patriot truther movement. Uh, saying that uh, they're they're spilling all the beans about what's going on, with very close associations uh, to uh, to Robert Gallo, Redfield, Burks, a whole list of other people. It's it's so unimaginably complex. There's hundreds of names to drop here, uh, but the simple story the simplest story is uh, there's just so much power, there's so much money, there's so much intrigue here. Uh, half of these virologists are more like uh, intelligence agents, uh, uh, you know, committing espionage on behalf of their country or even on their department or whatever the heck it is they're aligned to than, um, than just, uh, you know, bench scientists. It's a, uh, and it's actually, and it's, uh, I have to say, I, I, I have to say, guys, it is actually addictive. It's a, this research is addictive because it is so unimaginably complex. You can't. You can't, this is, you know, Harry Potter novels got, and the Dune series got nothing on this, you know, and we're making the story ourselves as we go along, we're, we're, we're discovering it. Um, uh, yeah, so that was, there was a lot there, a lot of tangents, getting into the Gallo stuff. I don't even know what the original question was. <laughs> I can't even remember. We're so far down in the stack right no, you're now good, you're good. of discussions. And that sounds like you know, a really valid point, too, because, I mean, there's just so much money tied into all of this, the funding and so forth. And then, I mean, obviously, I mean, given that uh, this is at the core of so many of these uh, national security uh, yeah. objectives now, I mean, it also stands to reason there would be just so many interests at play in all of this. If I may, if I may, it's uh, it's not just it's I would I would go far as to say it's all the money. If you, the World Bank and IMF uh, literally dictate monetary policy and uh, define uh, the availability of credit based upon a nation's willingness to offer their citizens for vaccination. 
It is, I think it's the, the very top. They will print whatever money, they will approve whatever ne is necessary uh, to move forward this agenda. It's not just a little bit of money, it's all the money. And and what, yeah, we, we, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what's the most valuable resource in the world. You know, is it diamonds, gold, uh, you know, rare earth materials used for, uh, you know, batteries. Is it uh, access to, uh, you know, renewable hydroelectric power? Again, you know, is it uh, the green pastures? A lot of discussion there. But what, what really is, and again, this is sort of the back of the napkin type stuff. Uh, the most valuable resource in the world, as far as I'm concerned, is a human being that can be used for medical experimentation. Mic drop, end of story. Average Medical payout for medical uh, average payout for medical malpractice in the United States is somewhere between five hundred thousand to ten million dollars a person, which would mean that. And again, this is back of the napkin type of stuff for you know. So it's don't take this too literally, but just for the sake of the discussion, the United States is worth four thousand trillion dollars in human capital, humans available for medical experimentation. If you pay, if you pay out at the at the, the typical payout per human per resident within the United States right now, that's worth way more than our land and our oil and everything else. So we have these national institutes of health with access or with the ability to dictate what happens to the most valuable resource of our nation with very little criticism. Uh, and I've, I've traced down uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and the, the networks that he's worked with or that has hired him, right? And there is a huge problem within the United States of offering top-level roles in many of our health institutes to uh, non-native-born U.S. citizens, which I have no trouble coming in from a consultative and a technical leadership standpoint. But, uh, you know, we've had our, our scientific director, Usamrit. Uh, we've had the, uh, you know, the... Uh, many of the deputies at the NIAID. I, I've tracked this out. I have a whole page on this stuff. The Plum Island director, Roger Breeze, was Scott. Um, the uh, it was the uh, what was the uh, the Galveston, Texas lab, uh, Ames, Iowa, Australian. We 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 actually don't even have control over the roles which dictate what gets injected into our bodies by mandate. This is a huge problem. Right. We, we have more scrutiny over who runs the military and who gets to control, you know, when we uh, when we have forced drafts and need to send our children off to war. But when it comes to this other stuff, which has far more impact on our well-being, eh, there hasn't been enough scrutiny. There has not been enough scrutiny, not to mention we don't even have our health institutes run by health professionals. They're run by geneticists. I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but this is this was one of I think one of the most important things I've, I was able to conclude. It's it's actually obvious. Um, it's not, I shouldn't be the first person to notice this, but we have our NIH, our CDC, our FDA, and all of these other institutes run by geneticists. They're not run by physicians. They're not run by people who've taken a Hippocratic oath. They're run by geneticists, scientists who have every capability to use human beings for disposable, uh, as disposable resources to collect data. That is a huge, huge problem that needs to be addressed. Almost no physicians 
uh, a rank highly in any of these organizations, yet they have total control over what we need to do physically. This, this has to be addressed. I really encourage the audience to dig into this topic and to try to, uh, you know, repeat it to your friends and family and on your social networks uh, that we need more physicians, more people who've taken the oath to do no harm uh, at higher levels and preferably uh, levels of total control of the institute. It's not everywhere. I'm totally cool with having some scientists and geneticists. That's the direction that things are moving in. But at every level, at all of these institutions, no. Francis Collins, Fauci, no. We need, we need some physicians uh, in these uh, uh, in these departments at those top level roles. Physicians with unquestionable allegiance to uh, uh, to United States citizens. I would encourage all countries at the top levels of their health institutes to do their best to find people to run them who are both physicians and have unquestionable allegiance to their own citizens as well. Don't trust, certainly don't trust Americans to come in and tell your citizens what to do or people from the World Bank. Uh, try to recruit from within because of just, just the severity of what, uh, the severity, uh, the severe impact on your population if bad decisions uh, are made. Uh, John? I got nothing to add. Right. That was well said, Mark. Uh, did you have anything else on AIDS, or Soviet propaganda, or anything like that? Either of you? No, um, I got nothing. I got nothing, for, but from the evolution, from the research standpoint, uh, and I'm I'm still just getting into this particular topic on my own research. It is a long and twisting path of what led to what led to AIDS. Uh, what, what parts, if any, were, were human engineered? What was discovered? The connection of, of that, of the, uh, of the SV40, the, uh, the virus which was found in some primates potentially causing, or at least being cancerous in primates, possibly even causing some mild cancers in people with polio vaccinations in the 1950s how that might have led to more and more investment into this, uh, what was called the virus cancer program in the United States. And ultimately, uh, years and years later, we have this HIV outbreak. There's a lot of dots there to connect. There's an excellent book written by, uh, uh, by Leonard Horowitz called Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola. I have not done this book or Horowitz justice. I've been using this book as reference. I've been, you know, I've flipped to a page when I find a subject in there that uh, I want to read up on, but I've realized lately that I need to read this book from beginning to end because it is such a convoluted story uh, uh, with so many twists and turns in it. Um, what I will add a couple more things though on the topic of uh, HIV uh, research. One is that, and this will be closer. This is we're closing in now on the last subjects of today's program, which has been excellent so far. One is uh, most ne most people don't know that on the front page of many U.S. newspapers on the morning of September 11th, 2001, it wasn't the top story. It was in the column. Was that Robert Gallo announced that he found a vaccine for HIV? That was on the newspapers on the morning of September 11th, 2001, oddly enough, as the planes were flying in. That is what was there. So most people didn't notice it. All right. That could just be one of those weird coincidences. 
But I'll also say that there was an enormous book called Big Shot, AIDS Vaccine, Passion Politics and the Struggle for an AIDS Vaccine, written by Patricia Thomas, a massive, extremely well-written uh, uh, book uh, about the uh, what was leading to this new era of vaccines, in particular, mRNA and DNA vaccines for things like HIV, right? Uh, that, that she started her research in 1996 and the book was published, came out available week after September 11th, 2001. Um, yes, there is, uh, it doesn't call him out by name, but it does actually talk about Robert Malone um, and some of the network of Robert Malone. Uh, point, and one more thing to tying in in today's current events, we talked about a possible, and this is of, of course said to be nothing but crazy conspiracy theory, possibly even Putin theory, pro-Putin theory, a potential relationship of hepatitis B vaccine development by Merck Corporation and early cases of, uh, of AIDS of people with uh, HIV in New York City and San Francisco. The uh, chimpanzees that were used for that research uh, eventually were sent back or, or they found refuge for some of these chimpanzees uh, in a remote area of uh, the nation of Liberia in Africa. Uh, the, the facility that had been used for, to, uh, for chimpanzees rescue uh, for a variety of purposes, fund, some of it funded by Tashax EcoHealth Alliance, uh, as well as uh, hosting a lot of research data and even chimpanzees involved in some of that uh, hepatitis B vaccine research going back to the late 1970s. That laboratory uh, just burned down two weeks ago. Um, it's a story that I don't know why the burning down of that lab has gotten almost no media attention, even though CNN and many other outlets had half hour specials on, uh, on the miracle of, uh, primate, uh, 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 protection provided by that lab and the network of that lab in, uh, in Liberia up until recently. So I don't know if there was arson or not. It doesn't look very good to me. Nonetheless, these, uh, these events of the past are not in the past. At the moment, still, events in China, Ukraine, you name it, we can find one-hop connections to things which happened 20, 40, 60 years ago. This is not ancient history that can just be forgotten about. It's, it's impacting events today. Uh, so, uh, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a long history I, I know like less than, I know like 2% of it. I, I probably know more than most, but I feel as though I know next to nothing compared to like this Horowitz book, Emerging Viruses, AIDS, and Ebola. Uh, uh, still though, I just wanted to give people just a taste for just how connected it is to uh, events uh, of the present day. All right, guys, that's a, a good note for us to end on now. Uh, there is certainly a lot more to be said about Africa, and uh, we will say a little bit uh, when we pick up uh, with this fascinating discussion in part two, which will hopefully be up uh, next week, if not probably the following week. Anyway, guys, as always, thank you all out there so much for listening and your support. And on that note, good night and good luck to you all.